Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. So there's this band I like. They're called Valley Maker. They make what I tend to call spectral folk. It's it's rhythmic, it's reverby, it's kind of ghostly. Lyrically, the songs are they're very thoughtful, very reflective. If you look at Valley Maker's Spotify, you'll see that they have three full-length LPs. They're all very good, but none of them are my favorite Valley Maker LP. My favorite Valley Maker record was made by the lead singer and songwriter, his name's Austin Crane, when he was still in college. It's self-titled. It was his thesis project, actually. It's, as you might expect, much more lo-fi than the later releases. Lots of guitar, a little percussion, some pretty backing vocals. It's it's also a concept album about the book of Genesis. Uh, I found it on the band's Bandcamp page back in 2010 or so when it was still their only release. And since I've got big sloppy Jesus issues, I was uh, deeply in love with it. I'm still in love with it. It's probably the vinyl record I play the most in my house. And whenever I see Valley Maker, I cross my fingers that he'll play something from it. But he usually doesn't. One of the last times I saw them, though, he played its closing track, but not before explaining the concept behind the album with a laugh and a bit of a shrug. He seemed kind of embarrassed by it. It's not, and it's not that I don't think he's proud of it. It's more like he can't really remember the person who made it. And that I can understand. It represents a different time, a different mindset, a different approach to creativity. It doesn't matter how good it is. Like anybody who's been making shit for a long time will cringe when they look back on the work they made when they were much, much younger. Lord knows I do. I'm sure my cohorts on this episode feel similarly. Um, All of this is to say that I imagine the Bachman books uh, for King, outside of Thinner and Regulators, are the sort of same to him as that self-titled album is to Austin. It's King, but it's an unrefined King. It's a King who's all anger and exposed nerves. And King, I think, likes the distance his pseudonym puts between him and those stories, which may as well have been written by someone else entirely. Not intentionally, but because King was still a writer divided. As you'll see in this episode about Blaze, a trunk novel published under the Bachman name, and the Bachman episodes we'll be publishing on our Patreon later this month, King, like Austin of Valley Maker, will still revisit that old work, but he can only do so with a lot of context and a kind of acknowledgement of how much he's changed since then. So yeah, I want to expand on these ideas more later this month when we are going to rank all the Bachman books and we're going to offer sort of a Bachman primer, uh, kind of the A to Z of Richard Bachman. And yeah, I think that there's a lot to unpack here that goes beyond, I think, our initial perceptions about what separates Stephen King and Richard Bachman. Uh, But for now, it's it's all about Blaze being Blaze. So who's with me? Uh, Dan Caffrey, say hello, introduce yourself, and tell me 
Have you read Blaze before? This is Dan. I, I was gonna say just Blaze being Blaze Caffrey because <laughs> we've. It's not a joke we made up. It's from something that. It's the only thing I can think of when I hear the word Blaze. There's also an Ethan Hawke directed movie called Blaze about a uh, an outsider art uh, country artist um, that whose name is Blaze. Also, <laughs> that's called Blaze. And it's the only thing I can think of. I like that movie quite a bit, but I cannot watch it without just thinking of just blaze being blaze anyway dan just blaze being blaze caffrey i read this book as i've mentioned before a summer that my wife was gone and she challenged me to read the 14 stephen king novels that i hadn't read that summer and blaze was one of them and honestly i knew nothing about it before i read it and other than that it was a bachman book and i have always heralded this novel i feel like it's weirdly the bachman novel that gets discussed the least which is strange because I'll just say it right now. It's by far and away my favorite Bachman book, even more so than The Long Walk. I, I don't know any Damn. of y'all's feelings on it, so we'll see. Let's as go. The episode, yeah, we'll see the episode as it goes on. But yeah, I loved it then. I, I loved the reread. I actually liked the reread even more of it. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this book today. When any, Whenever anyone asks what's an underrated Stephen King book, what's maybe a more obscure one that's not a big brick of a novel like the stand or it or whatever else uh a non-famous king novel what's the one i should read and i always recommend blaze um i've never followed up with any of those people on whether my recommendation was good or not maybe they hated it I they never easy- spoke to me again i could easily see someone hating this book um I-, I can see it being a polarizing novel too but uh yeah super excited to talk about it today um so yeah let's just keep on going have you been on any other bachman episodes dan I want to say just the long walk, I think. Okay. I don't even think I was on road work, despite maybe rage. Maybe I was on rage. I definitely wasn't on thin. I think all of us were on rage. Yeah, I think that was was an early one. Yeah, but I definitely was not on road work because I would have talked about the champagne pop, which other people (laughs) did for me. Um, Or was I? I don't fucking remember. Yeah, not not definitely not all of them. I know I was not on thinner. I know I was not on regulators Um, uh, and I was not on running man. So what are your thoughts on Bachman in general? since we haven't really gotten that perspective from you as much. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm like Havsies in on Bachman. I think The Long Walk and Blaze are two of King's best novels, Bachman or otherwise. I think Thinner is kind of the uh, the epitome of Bachman, right? Because the whole thing, I don't know, it's funny because I feel like the thing they say is, oh, Bachman's supposed to be like the George Stark of King, like the twisted King, right? I don't think Bachman novels are that much more twisted or pessimistic even than King books. I will say this, I think some of his other ones are trying to fit more into the thriller crime category. And I think blaze does that the best um, out, out of all of them. I, it, it feels the most Bach. It feels the most of what Bachman is actually supposed to be, if that makes sense to me. And I think that makes yeah. sense. I, I think the reason for that is because as I'm sure you'll go into in history is because it's taking pages that were written under the Bachman pseudonym back in the day, but it's filtering them through King's modern perspective. So I feel like he's able to play into the Bachman alias a little bit more here rather than just slapping the name on books that he maybe thinks aren't as worthy or aren't in his usual mm. wheelhouse. Like he feels very self-aware of who Bachman is here and catering to that. So uh, I think yeah. that's very true. And I think that's really what distinguishes Blaze from from all the others is that this is the only Bachman book that he wrote, that he rewrote uh, after, you know what I mean? Like, having sat with the idea of what this pseudonym is uh, and what it represents for readers. Uh, Like, because Regulators was self-consciously written as a Bachman book and Thinner was, he's even acknowledged that's a Stephen King book and not really a Bachman book. Um, 
And, uh, and, but Blaze is the one that he actually reworked. And I think, you know, as, like you're right, like self-aware of what is the Bachman brand. But the thing is, and I agree with you, and I think we're going to, we're not going to go super deep on that particular aspect of like, what is a Bachman book too deep in this episode? Cause I want to save that for the later ones. But I do think that the general perceptions, uh, the sort of log line of what is a Bachman book. I don't think that it's that simple, you know? Yeah. And, what- um, yeah. I, we- I also think that it's kind of funny because he's had the Hodges trilogy. He's had all these Holly books. He's had the Colorado kid. I haven't read um, later or Billy Summers, which is also a crime thing. Those are two books I haven't read, but I feel like those were all kind of marketed as, Oh, it's King's hard boiled crime uh, stretch. And I actually don't think some of those books are quite hard boiled crime. He even says in this intro here that the Colorado kid was like soft boiled of anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think blaze is actually his best example of, what a fast-paced, hard-boiled crime novel looks like. But it, it's never in that discussion, though. I feel like when people discuss the Hodges trilogy, when they discuss Holly Gibney, when they discuss Colorado Kid, Blaze never comes up. And that's yeah. interesting to me because I feel like it's like the epitome of the King crime novel, the King hard-boiled crime novel, at least. Um, yeah, and yeah. I'm, I'm just going to like jump in and this is Rock and Randall. And I just feel like it's worth it to say like my experience, my first, this is my first time ever reading this book. And the reason I'm introducing myself now is just because I want to pivot off that and say, I had no idea this was a crime novel. Like this for as, as steeped in Stephen King as I am in that this has been a major part of my life for many years. Uh, I grew up reading all the books, you know, coming into this podcast, I had maybe like, I could count on one hand, I think how many books I hadn't read. Well, at least full length books. And I always thought Blaze was like a horror novel. I never, ever, ever realized it was a crime novel until I started reading it. And that to me is like, I just always had that perception. Like I've never misjudged what a King book is that I didn't know before. And that was kind of a jarring thing for me. So I don't know. I think that that speaks perhaps to the... I don't think a lot of people have read this book. So it's like, I think in the King canon, this one might even be less read than something like Colorado Kid, which is really interesting. Uh, Jen, say hello and uh, tell us about your Blaze experience. Hey, this is Jen too, the the Blaze Adams, I guess. Um, And I, this was my second time reading it. And I remember, I think my dad like picked it up at the grocery store for me and was like, hey, here's new, because he knew I liked Stephen King. And I think I was around, like I had read Odd Thomas recently, which I know is not Stephen King, so nobody yell at me. But um, that's Coons, baby, right? It is Coons, and it's pretty good. Like I didn't, Love my I didn't man, mind DK. it. Um, and I just like the weight of those books felt similar. Like I really like, like this feels like the kind of book you can read kind of on a whim. And I was like, okay, you know. And I just kind of jumped into it, and I was really surprised by how much I liked it the first yeah. time I read it, and then this time knowing what it was going to be. I think I, I did enjoy it even more. I have a lot of thoughts about Bachman and we've, I've been on a couple of the Bachman episodes. So I've talked a lot about Bachman, but I, I'm interested to talk about, cause I don't feel like this feels like a Bachman book to me at all. And I think my copy says Stephen King writing as Richard Bachman in, and Stephen King is much bigger letters. And same it, yeah, it, yeah. Same. it feels like kind of like, and I know that's a marketing thing, but I think it feels like Stephen King trying to kind of recapture something that is just it's not who he is anymore and I really enjoy it I really like it but I just don't I feel like Bachman is actually dead you know 
Yeah. Um, but I will say I listened to the audiobook. It was read by Rob McClarty, who also reads um, Salem's Lot. And so hearing those two in the same voice, I feel like was really interesting because I feel like there are some kind of connections between the two, you know. Did he do his Barlow voice for George? <laughs> he did not. No, he didn't. He actually did. Oh, the George voice was god awful actually <laughs> that was very like yes it reminded me of darnell actually hey, and christine see? yeah see anyways so yeah dan flieger say hello and tell us uh, all about you and blaze this is dan taking care of business flieger <laughs> uh blaze being blaze uh i do i do hope everyone knows what that is i finally over covid watched burning love i'm a uh i would say a I don't say enemy, but yeah, probably an enemy of the Bachelor type series. I just don't like. <laughs> I I just think like I'd rather watch professional sports if I want to see competition. I feel like those things are all fake. But uh-huh. the parody, Blaze being Blaze, man. When I finally watched that, I was cracking up. Yeah, let's it, just explain it now. So, if you're not aware, there is a television show called Burning Love. It was a parody of the Bachelor franchise with a lot of the guys from the state, people like Michael Ian Black, Ken Marino, um, Joe Latrulio, like. All these guys and like also like Adam Scott's in it, Kumail Nanjiani's in it, uh, a million other people, like every famous person in the world is in it. And it's it's very, very funny. And there were three seasons and uh, Ryan Hansen, who's on Party Down and Veronica Mars, he plays a character named Blaze who's like so hot that the woman like obviously wants him over all the other guys and he's completely indifferent to her. Uh, sorry to talk about, explain the the <laughs> plot of Burning Love on a Stephen King podcast, but it is true for at least the Dans and I, we cannot see Blaze without thinking of Ryan Hansen's well, performance as Blaze. And hey, it's yeah. funny because I was debating whether to say just being Blaze, Blaze just being Blaze tonight because I'm like, well, it's not King related, but it is because you guys talk to The Bachelor, The Bachelor this season. It's bachelor. true. That's so true. it's King's Dominion now. It's King's Dominion. Wait, Jen, uh, we, asked you- him, we asked him if you watched Burning love and he said he'd heard of it but he hadn't watched it uh jen hasn't either i've seen jen shaking <laughs> oh, her head no i have That's not like- no i didn't know what you guys were talking about until just now so i've been like smiling and nodding like <laughs> yeah. yeah he says okay. it I like think it <laughs> I, I think the bachelor is smiling nodding as well like oh, yeah. it, it only it makes perfect sense for you like have you heard of this thing do you get it and he's like maybe <laughs> no no it's funny i assumed that a lot of people knew what this was because from what I remember, Burning Love was very popular back when it debuted. Yeah, but, but I, it only played on the internet. That's yeah, the thing, like a, and it was—it's like, mm, like a Hulu exclusive type. It, no. Well, it, it was a Yahoo. It was a Yahoo TV. Oh, even worse. Then. <laughs> I know, and then it was on Hulu for a long time. But now you have to like buy it on Amazon. And, and also, I, it was yeah. almost like viral, but pre-viral being a thing, if that makes mm, sense. And because mm-hmm. I was looking for gifts to send you guys, I, I had—I just assumed that there had to be tons of memes or tons of. Gifts, gifts, whatever. It really isn't. Of him saying just Blaze being Blaze, there's not. Yeah. I'm going to make a Blaze being Blaze one for this podcast and for our social media. And just if you hear a soundbite a couple times throughout this episode, Blaze being Blaze. That is not us speaking. It's probably from Burning Love. Can I, can I, uh, just Blaze being Blaze? Blaze being Blaze. And finishing my (laughs) intro. Yeah, sorry. No, 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 no. It's okay. It's okay. Um, Don't worry. It's totally fine. I, I just wanted to say what Randall and I and Jen were thinking is, Blaze being Blaze. Blaze being Blaze. You know, there's GIFs, there's images. Caffrey sent 900 lines of coded <laughs> text. 
in an attempt to send a gif but i know you're yeah. a new father it's okay i, I get it it's just, it was cracking me up i was like maybe this is horrible. the joke i don't know I, and i i had jokes coming and i was like i think randall's got this and within a few minutes randall made a joke at your expense for sending so much coded <laughs> so, i did the thing where i tried to copy and paste it from my phone which doesn't work and you have to do that yeah. desktop and it was dumb of me and it's fine we saw, we saw all the urls you were visiting um entire search history yeah we got it but just going back to the bachman um i think i was on the regulators yeah you were that might be the only bachman i've actually done but i kind of agree with jen on this it doesn't feel as much like a bachman novel and i'm sure we'll get into it during the episode this book felt very unfinished to me and other than Blaze being Blaze being funny, I just kept thinking of the cartoon. Which way did he go, George? Yeah. Like that kind of thing. It's got that, yeah, that big time. Oh, the uh, is... those two Looney Tune characters for that South Park parodies all yes. the time, Mimsy and I, I forget what their actual names are. Yeah, I had that. I was thinking it, that too. every time he would say George. I just well, are thinking. those characters like direct parodies of of Mice and Men? I th- yeah, I think it's like a parody of a parody. Like on South Park, they're parodying this Looney Tunes. Uh, bit and it's actually funny because in looney tunes they are criminals they're like these gangs like a big gangster big dumb gangster and yeah. a small more intelligent uh potty mouthed gangster who i think are I, I think anytime you have like the big lug with the more talkative meaner smaller guy i just always assume it's a mice man hell gremlins 2 does it the two gremlins <laughs> are george and lenny in that the classic trope yeah I, yeah, yeah I, it never gets old for me i love it <laughs> well we'll talk about tropes a bit uh, later, but for now, we're going to venture into the Dairy Public Library to talk history. Mike Hammond, if you see. Hey, excuse me, sir. Do you have Prince Albert in a can? You do? Well, you better let the poor guy out. Yo, Mike Hammond, did I have to go? Did I have to get cleaned up? Tell him. Tell him. Tell him I'll see him tonight. Get out! Last chance, don't you? Get out! So, okay, Blaze, published June 12th, 2007, via Scribner. Uh, The book contains, in addition to Blaze, Memory, which was a short story that was first published in 2006, and which King has since worked into Duma Key, which is called The Duma Key. I don't know. Did you guys notice that? I did not read Memory just because I'm on the Duma Key episode, and so I I don't need you to read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I I just thought it was funny that that it said like King's next book is called The Duma Key. Oh, is that what it says in the? Hold on, yeah. It was says in my edition at least. It's because Justin Timberlake showed up, and he was like, "Just drop the the, the, Stephen." Yeah, mine says was was social network out by this time. Mine says Duma Key, but I have a first edition, so I feel like it should be the Duma Key. If it's, uh, Mm. I don't know, weird. Interesting. I have a later edition. I've got what do I have? Like pocketbooks. I don't know. It would have been funny if King like had a moment where he's like, you know what? I want to call it the Duma Key instead. Change that in the pocket <laughs> books. And then, he's, yeah. then he was and like, then, oh yeah, mine says the Duma Key too. Oh, oh nice. Weird. Wow. Interesting. My, my article's all, it says a Duma Key. <laughs> mm, weird. <laughs> Our Duma Key. Yeah. Our Duma, uh, Duma Key. Key. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was released with with sort of a preview of Duma Key, which is going to be our next book. Start reading; it's very long, uh, and uh, it was released as most King books of this era were with an accompanying website that required I download a Flash plugin via the Wayback Machine to visit, which I chose not to do. Uh, so, what would you guys want from a two thousand and seven era Blaze website? Hmm. I don't know, like. It was interactive, it, kind of. Yeah, thing, there was like I it from the vibe I got. There was like 
games and like, flash animations. I guess like, like oh, figure out how to steal this baby. Or yeah, something. can yeah. you get the baby out of the bedroom? Mm. Like, do you remember that era of like flash animation websites? Like, they were so impossible to navigate. Yeah, as long as, long as there's like a construction worker with a hard hat that says "website under construction," <laughs> looping, yeah. that's when I know I'm on a good site. I almost feel like it would be like the game Mist or something, where it's just really boring and you're you're <laughs> supposedly doing action stuff, but you're just like pointing to things and then they're a door opens or whatever I feel yeah like that's like what i associate with that i read um when i read oh gosh what are those vampire twilight when i was super obsessed with twilight for like a couple of months i would go to the website every single day and it was just a picture of edward and bella and i was like "Ooh, this looks exciting so maybe that's it was, what it is it it's was just good a every time <laughs> it was man it's like Ooh. that old tumblr account that was uh the same picture of dave coulier every day and it literally <laughs> was that for like yeah seven years and then they stopped it was alanismorissette.com oh <laughs> um so yeah i don't know that just made me laugh i wanted to visit the website but i don't know i'm scared to download anything um, yeah. you know that is flash related uh so the first time constant readers ever heard of this book we're going to talk about the actual history but let's let's look at it from the reader's point of view the first mention of this book in king lore was in the different seasons afterward so this was um you know early 80s i believe 80 84 somewhere around there and um and here's what was written in the back of that book. Just before the publication of Carrie, my first novel, I got a letter from my editor, Bill Thompson, suggesting it was time to start thinking about what we were going to do for an encore. It may strike you as a bit strange, this thinking about the next book before the first was even out, but because the pre-publication schedule for a novel is almost as long as the post-production schedule on a film, we had been living with Carrie for a long time at that point, nearly a year. I promptly sent Bill the manuscripts of two novels, one called Blaze and one called Second Coming. The former had been written immediately after Carrie, during the six-month period when the first draft of Carrie was sitting in a desk drawer, mellowing. The latter was written during the year or so when Carrie inched, tortoise-like, closer and closer to publication. Blaze was a melodrama about a huge, almost retarded criminal who kidnaps a baby, planning to ransom it back to the child's rich parents and then falls in love with the child instead. Second Coming was a melodrama about vampires taking over a small town in Maine. Both were literary imitations of a sort. Second Coming of Dracula, Blaze of Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men. I think Bill must have been flabbergasted when these two manuscripts arrived in a single big package. Some of the pages of Blaze had been typed on the reverse sides of Milk Bills, and the Second Coming manuscript reeked of beer because someone had spilled a pitcher of black label on it during a New Year's Eve party three months before. Someone. Like a woman, what's that? Someone, someone spilled. Yeah, I know, right? Like a woman who wishes for a bouquet of flowers and discovers her husband has gone out and bought her a hot house. Mm. This was written in the early 80s. Uh, the two manuscripts <laughs> together totaled about 550 single space pages. He read them both over the next couple of weeks, scratch on editor and find a, find a saint, or scratch an editor and find a saint. And I went down to New York from Maine to celebrate the publication of Carrie. April 1974, friends and neighbors, Lennon was alive, Nixon was still hanging in there as president, and this kid had yet to see the first gray hair in his beard. <laughs> and to talk about which of the two books should be next, or if neither of them should be next. I was in the city for a couple of days, and we talked around the question three or four times. The final decision was made on a street corner, Park Avenue and 44th Street, in fact. Bill and I were standing there waiting for the light. 
watching the calves roll by in that or into that funky tunnel or wherever it is, uh, whatever it is, the one that seems to burrow straight through the Pan Am building. And Bill said, I think it should be second coming. Well, that was the one I liked better myself. But there was something so oddly reluctant in his voice that I looked at him sharply and I asked him what the matter was. It's just that if you do a book about vampires as the follow-up to a book about a girl who can move things by mind power, you're going to get typed, he said. Typed, I asked? Honestly bewildered, I could see no similarities to speak of between vampires and telekinesis. As what? As a horror writer, he said, more reluctantly still. Oh, I said, vastly relieved. Is that all? Give it a few years, he said, and see if you still don't think it's all. Bill, I said amused, no one can make a living writing just horror stories in America. Lovecraft starved in Providence, Block gave it up for suspense novels and unknown type spoofs, and so on and so forth. Essentially, King was saying that, oops, I actually was able to make a living writing horror novels, but I didn't always write horror novels. And so that was the afterword to different seasons, which were, you know, four, if you haven't read it, which you should, because it's quite good, four novellas, all of them, uh, you know, if not... If not horror, like breathing method is like horror adjacent. The rest are pretty divorced, I think, from traditional horror. It's uh, Shawshank, The Body, which turned into Stand By Me, and uh, App Pupil, which is horrific, but not really horror. Uh, so, you know, King was essentially saying in this that, you know, I can do more than just write horror. I think, uh, you know, and that's a question which we have often explored on this podcast, the idea of him wanting to be seen as more than just a genre writer, but also popping back and forth between loving the genre writer in himself and uh, resisting it aggressively. So let's fast forward now to 2007. This is from the Blaze forward. We didn't hear anything else about Blaze in that time, uh, not until it actually was released. And the forward includes a lot of information, some of which is a little bit contrasting to what we already knew, and we're going to discuss that. But let me start with the beginning of the forward, and then we're going to take a break from that, discuss the discrepancies, and then get back to it. So here's how the blaze forward starts. Dear Constant Reader, this is a trunk novel, okay? I want you to know that while you've still got your sales slip and before you drip something like gravy or ice cream on it and thus make it difficult or impossible to return. It's a revised and updated trunk novel, but that doesn't change the basic fact. The Bachman name is on it because it's the last novel from 1966 to 1973, which was that gentleman's period of greatest productivity. During those years, I was actually two men. It was Stephen King who wrote and sold horror stories to raunchy skin mags like Cavalier and Adam, but it was Bachman who wrote a series of novels that didn't sell to anybody. These included Rage, The Long Walk, Roadwork, and The Running Man. All four were published as paperback originals. Blaze was the last of those early novels, the fifth quarter, if you like, or just another well-known writer's trunk novel, if you insist. It was written in late 72 and early 73. I thought it was great while I was writing it, and crap when I read it over. My recollection is that I never showed it to a single publisher, not even Doubleday, where I had made a friend named William G. Thompson. Bill was the guy who would later discover John Grisham, and it was Bill who contracted for the book Following Blaze, a twisted but fairly entertaining tale of prom night in central Maine. So, something's not adding up. Can you guys tell me what it is? Well, because it he said he never showed it to an editor. Mm-hmm. And also, he, 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 in one instance, he says it's pre Carrie, and the yeah. other one instance, he yeah, says it's post Carrie. Correct. 
So, so what, is it? Have we? Has the sleuth solved this mystery, or, or is it just? Of course, yeah. <laughs> he was just getting old, and he forgot. No, I'm kidding. Uh, that's can not can it. I say it's it's cool to see King finally mention John Grisham in one of his? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I but I do like the dating. It's like you know the guy who eventually discovered John Grisham. Let's not forget I was there before Johnny. So yeah, <laughs> I also friends. love like this is a, the couple times he does he does with the, the stand too. He's like, hey, before you throw that receipt away, just so you know, like uh-huh. like we're gonna change our mind and like return this to the store. Do you mean the, the sales slip? <laughs> uh huh, cracks me up. Yeah, before you spill anything on it. Um. Okay. So yeah, something's not adding up. You guys listened well. You caught it. So King writes in the different seasons forward that he submitted Blaze alongside Second Coming, which would become Salem's Lot, uh, as possible follow-ups to Carrie. That clashes with King's claim here that he never submitted it anywhere. It also clashes with him saying that he wrote the novel. Uh, he says 1975 to or 74 to 75 in the different seasons afterward, 72, 73 in the forward. So Many thanks to Bryant Burnett, Losers Club historian, uh, archivist, and Bev Vincent, who has written about this on his blog, for pointing this discrepancy out to me. As they noted, King told the different season story again in a 2006 interview in the Paris Review with one major difference. So here's the quote from the Paris Review in 2006. I remember having this conversation with Bill Thompson, my first editor at Doubleday. They had just published Carrie, which was a big success, and they wanted a follow-up book. I gave him two other books I had already written, Salem's Lot and, do you have a guess? Carrie? Roadwork. What did you say? Roadwork, it is. Roadwork, oh, man. It was Roadwork, uh, which was later published under my pseudonym, Richard Bachman. I asked him which one he wanted to do first. He said, you're not going to like the answer. He said that Roadmark was a more honestly dealt novel a novelist novel if you know what i mean but that he wanted to do salem's lot because he thought it would have greater commercial success so uh why do you guys think he lied i think i have read ahead a little bit in the document so i think because he was still trying to pretend to be bachman or he was still yeah he didn't want to out himself I, ah. I, yeah, but I it's I'm cracking up just reading. It's like so we have Salem's Lock and Roadwork. Which one I do know, you think is right? Mm, I know. Mm. Apples and oranges, right? The description of it being a novelist's novel, I find actually really interesting. I'm like, huh, that fits a little better than I just. Here's the thing. We're not going to do this on this pod because if we start talking about Roadwork, we probably <laughs> won't true. stop. But I am rereading Roadwork right now. Oh, it's really? the one Bachman book I've not reread for the podcast. Um, mm. I read it when I was young, but I didn't. I wasn't on that episode. So that book is fascinating. And that book to me is the epitome of what Richard Bachman is. And it is to me, uh, I think, going to be the centerpiece of some of our conversations later in the month about Bachman because I think it really reveals a lot. But... Dan, I had the, or Flieger, I had the exact same thought, which is like, put those two novels next to each other, like hilarious, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that what that speaks to in a nutshell is that Salem's Lot, for as amazing it is, was a horror book. Roadwork, for as rough as it is, was still an adult novel, right? And he was in his like mid-20s. Like he mm-hmm. thought he had written something extremely profound in Roadwork. And I think that because he was really grappling with the issues in the time and it was also came from a place, I think, of really deep sentimentality and earnestness, whereas Salem's Lot perhaps didn't. But so I think it was I think there, there was sort of a clouded 
perception of what each book was. And that funny. to me is really fascinating. Well, it's funny because Barton Dawes is not acting like an adult in Road Warrior, <laughs> if I do say so myself. So yeah. just put yeah, that with, out there. With the, with the two compared, because I always mention The Simpsons, but there's they go to a fancy restaurant and they give us your most expensive meal and your second most. And they're like, all right, lobster and tacos. Well, goes, and that's kind of how stuff, I feel about Salem's. Yeah, lobster stuff with tacos. Stuff with tacos. <laughs> it, but that's how I feel about those two novels because it's just such a difference between Salem's mm-hmm. Lot and Road Work. Oh my goodness. I mean, I'm yeah. not, this is not an exaggeration. Sam's Lot is my favorite King novel. Road Warrior is my least favorite King novel. Like, <laughs> oh, wow. Away. So, yeah. But it's, so it's more of a right novelist choice, novel, eh? though. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I guess I wasn't reading enough John Cheever when uh, I read Road Work. <laughs> Hello, this is Jason, co host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like. Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. So yeah, (laughs) Yeah. we're going to spend some time later in the month, I think, digging, like peeling back some of those layers that we just touched on here. But but yeah, you guys are right. Uh, Different Seasons came out in 82. Roadwork came out in 81. He wouldn't be outed as Richard Bachman for several more years. So his little fib was uh, likely in service to keeping his pseudonym safe. Although he's never... He's never pointed that out or he's never like acknowledged that he fibbed in the different seasons afterward, which I mean, to be honest, he's probably forgotten about by this point. Only dorks like us care about it. But (laughs) um, but Bryant Burnett, uh, he actually was sort of theorizing a little bit about why he felt the need to sort of tell that story at all in the different seasons afterward. And uh, I thought this was perceptive, so I wanted to read it. Uh, Bryant said. Um, it also probably explains why he felt the urge to tell Little Fib in different seasons afterward and use Blaze as a stand-in for roadwork. He must have wanted to tell the story of how he, post-Carrie, had a real moment where he was putting forward a very serious non-horror book as a potential left-turn career path. He couldn't mention roadwork without giving up the Bachman identity, so he looked around the drawers a bit to see what else he could talk about, and boom, there was Blaze. He must have figured, well, I'm never publishing that one anyway, so who will ever know? which hardy har so uh i thought that was smart and a notion that i think i'll be revisiting later when we're talking more about bachman so um i will say though the story from the different seasons afterward is still listed on blaze's wikipedia page proving once again that we must never trust anything we read on the internet um okay back to the forward here's what king says I forgot about Blaze for a few years. Then after the other early Bachmans had been published, I took it out and looked it over. After reading the first 20 pages or so, I decided my first judgment had been correct and returned it uh, to Perda. I thought the writing was okay, but the story reminded me of something Oscar Wilde once said. He claimed it was impossible to read the old curiosity shop without weeping copious tears of laughter. Uh, So Blaze was forgotten, but never really lost. It was only stuffed in some corner of the Fogler Library at the University of Maine with the rest of their Stephen King Richard Bachman stuff. 
Blaze ended up spending the next 30 years in the dark, and then I published a slim paperback original called The Colorado Kid with an imprint called Hardcase Crime. This line of books, the brainchild of a very smart and very cool fellow uh, named Charles Ardai, was dedicated to reviving old noir and hard-boiled paperback crime novels and publishing new ones. The Kid was uh, decidedly soft-boiled, but Charles decided to publish it anyway with one of uh, those great old paperback covers. So um, about a year later, I thought maybe I'd like to go to the hardcase route again, possibly with something that had a harder edge. My thoughts turned to Blaze for the first time in years, but trailing along behind came that damn Oscar Wilde quote about the old curiosity shop. One must have a heart of stone to read the death of Little Nell without laughing. (laughs) Which is just so bitchy, it makes me (laughs) laugh. Um, Okay, so uh, back to Blaze. Um, He says... The blaze I remembered wasn't hard-boiled noir, but a three-handkerchief weepy. Still, I decided it wouldn't hurt to look. If that was, the book could even be found. I remembered the carton, and I remembered the squarish typeface. My wife Tabitha's old college typewriter and impossible-to-kill Olivetti portable. But I had no idea what had become of the manuscript that was supposedly inside the carton. For all I knew, it was gone, baby, gone. It wasn't. Marsha, one of my two valuable assistants, found it in the Fogler Library. She would not trust me with the original manuscript. I, uh, lose things. But she made a Xerox. I must have been using a next-to-dead typewriter ribbon when I composed Blaze because the copy was barely legible, and the notes on the margins were little more than blurs. Still, I sat down with it and began to read, ready to suffer the pangs of embarrassment only one's younger, smart-assier self can provide. But I thought it was pretty good. Certainly better than Roadwork, which I had at the time considered mainstream American fiction. It wasn't, it just wasn't a noir novel. It was rather a stab at the sort of naturalism within crime that James M. Cain and Horace McCoy practiced in the 30s. I thought the flashbacks were actually better than the front story. They reminded me of James T. Farrell's Young Longian or Long Lonigan trilogy and the forgotten but tasty Gas House McGinty. <laughs> Sounds fake. All this sounds so <laughs> fake. Oh, no. Tasty. Uh, sure, it was the three P's in places, but it had been written by a young man, I was 25, who was convinced he was writing for the ages. <laughs> I thought Blaze could be rewritten and published without too much embarrassment, but it was probably wrong for hard case crime. It was, in a sense, not a crime novel at all. I thought it could be a minor tragedy of the underclass if the rewriting was ruthless. To that end, I adopted the flat, dry tones, which the best noir fiction seems to have, even using a type font called American Typewriter to remind myself of what I was up to. Remember when fonts were like a, like it was like a novelty? Mm-hmm. That was fun. Um, I worked fast, never looking ahead or back, wanting also to capture the headlong drive of those books. I'm thinking more of Jim Thompson and Richard Stark here than I am of Kane, McCoy, or Farrell. I thought I would do my revisions at the end with a pencil rather than editing in the computer, as is now fashionable. If the book was going to be a throwback, I wanted to play into that rather than shying away from it. I also determined to strip all the sentiment I could from the writing itself, wanted the finished book to be as stark as an empty house without even a rug on the floor. My mother would have said I wanted its bare face hanging out. Only the reader will be able to judge if I succeeded. One other thing, while I've got you by the lapel, I tried to keep the Blaze time frame as vague as possible so it wouldn't seem too dated. It was impossible to take out all the dated material, however, keeping some of it was important to the plot. If you think of this story's time frame as America, not all that long ago, I think you'll be okay. And then he says, may I close by circling back to where I started? This is an old novel, but I believe I was wrong in my initial assessment that it was a bad novel. You may disagree. 
but the little match girl, Dane. As always, constant reader, I wish you well. Uh, I thank you for reading this story, and I hope you enjoy it. I won't say I hope you missed up a little, but yeah, yeah, I will say that, just as long as they're not tears of laughter. Uh, He says, Stephen King for Richard Bachman, Sarasota, Florida, January 30th, 2007. Um, What were your big takeaways from that intro? Like, what stands out to you as sort of... um, I don't know, something you find particularly interesting about it. I think that, I mean, it's interesting because we don't have the pages from before this, right? But (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think what he says about tempering the sentimentality makes a lot of sense because the book really does toe that line with how tragic it is. I mean, if you trace everything in Blaze's life, it is almost comical how sad it is. It is Dickensian. It is very much like the little match girl, right? But it Mm -hmm. works for me because it does have that style he's talking about where the sentimentality is stripped and it's almost, it's not, it's not cold and clinical because I think there's a lot of humor in the novel and there's a lot of warmth to it to an extent, but it's not trying too hard. It doesn't feel too labored. It doesn't feel like it's trying so hard to elicit emotion. Um, for instance, I I really love the sentiment, this, what could be a sentimental ending with this baby seeing the ghost of blaze, right? Like the idea that George is, that thing is being passed on to this baby that could be really hokey, but it, uh, it almost, maybe this is too hyperbolic of a comparison, but it almost reminded me of something like you would read in Lincoln in the Bardo or something. Just this, this, it had this idea of the afterlife that goes beyond, Oh, I see the clouds opening up and it, no, it is not like, it is not like in the Stan mini series where you see Dude. mother Abigail's head <laughs> looking down on, on the baby. It almost feels mystical. I wrote that way. down. I really did. <laughs> she's just, and then the credits roll. So I, th- I think, you know, obviously we don't have the pre- the deleted pages to compare it to, but I do think the novel gets away with what it gets away with because of the lack of sentimentality. I actually, when, when he wrote that, that very much resonated with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I want to talk more about what aspects of this feel like a young writer a little bit later. Yeah. And I think that definitely is part of it. So we'll talk more about that. Can Jen, I, what I, were you going to say? Oh, go ahead, Fleer. No, no, no. Jen, you, please go. Well, I think um, at first I was kind of rolling my eyes with like the edits by pencil because I just think about what a pain in the ass that would be. But right. I feel like that maybe is what makes this really feel like a trunk novel because I think when I first got it, I was like, this isn't a trunk novel. That's just a gimmick. Like he just wrote this now and he's just saying it is. But I like reading it a couple of times and really kind of familiarizing myself with Bachman. I think it is. And I think that um, like getting himself back into that mindset is what really allowed him to kind of tap back into this younger writer feeling, you know, and it still doesn't feel like the early Bachman's to me, but like he's such a writer of the moment and his mindset just like bleeds onto the page in a good way that I think like that was probably a key part of it was to like put himself back into the time period when he wrote this, you know, so it doesn't feel too disjointed or jarring, you know? Yeah. What were you going to say, Flieger? Uh, just I checking my notes. It says just Blaze being Blaze over and over again. Blaze being Blaze. No, it, it is funny because I'm sure Twitter was around, but the intro sounds the the tone of his intro in this sounds so much like tweets where it's like, "Can I please say like these little sort of like asides <laughs> that make it conversational more than literary?" Which just cracked me up. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this feels very different than the other Bachman novels, and I'll save my thoughts for the episode coming up. But I, I don't. And I mean, 
a little hint. I, I, this feels like an unfinished novel, and I know he went back and did finish it, but it still feels incomplete to me. Mm, yeah. Um, and some of this, when you start comparing it to Oscar Wilde and like Dickensian novels, I don't know that this maybe <laughs> can hold a match to those. I don't know. Hold a match girl up to those. A little girl match. <laughs> I don't know if they hold a little girl match. Like it's it's more that joke back in the day where it's like, hey, you got a match, and it's like, yeah, my butt in your face, like that sort of. <laughs> attitude i don't know it, it just it, it there's like a little bit of a defensive quality in this intro that i'm picking up on which he has in some of his other novels i, I don't know I, I no i know what you mean and i think like that's sort of what i was getting at i think a little in that in my intro where i was talking about that band valley maker and the way that like they couldn't really reference that early album without laughing at themselves a little bit or being a little bit on the defense. Like, Oh, I'm, I'm a lot further along now than I, than I was then. But so, you know, if this is a trunk novel, so, you know, save your receipt in case you don't like it, you know, that kind of, that kind of attitude. Sales slip. Sales slip. Yes. I just think it's so funny. Sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I wonder if this just came out as a Stephen King novel, like the newest Stephen King novel how we would feel about it because there is kind of like a curiosity factor to it you know or like Mm -hmm. it feels like I don't know relic is not quite the right word but it feels like like an oddity also too you know which I think heightens my experience reading it I think relic might actually be accurate and we can talk about that and Mm -hmm. at least in terms of the way the tropes it incorporates you know what I mean Mm -hmm. um but yeah so okay few other things in the history uh, before we move on. The Haven Foundation. So the Haven Foundation, this is mentioned in the afterword too, but King elaborated on it a bit in an interview, the interview with Lilja's Library that I mentioned about how all the proceeds from this book went to the Haven Foundation, which was previously called the Wave Dancer Foundation. It was meant to help out freelance artists in financial distress. Uh, Dan's, we talked about it in one of our Dark Tower episodes. What I remember we like looked up, the, we couldn't like find stuff on the Wave Dancer Foundation, and that's because he changed the name to the Haven Foundation. So, After uh, but TV show or before or that was before the TV show, I guess. But that would you know it was it was close at least because yeah. I know that we're covering Haven, I believe, next month. So, um, but yeah, so this is from the interview. The idea was to help writers and artists who were down on their luck, and we got to have some money to start with. We got to have startup money. So I'm thinking to myself, I need a book. I need to publish a book and copyright it to the Haven Foundation, and all the money can go to this thing because I don't need any more money, you know? (laughs) I guess everybody could use it right now, but right now I don't exactly need it anymore. So he says, Blaze was what occurred to me, and I thought, well, it's probably not good enough. Uh, why not look at it again and see? So I did, and I was wrong about it. It's really a good book. So I rewrote it, and it was very funny to get the manuscript because it was done in my wife's old typewriter. Tabby claims that I married her for a typewriter. <laughs> she had a nice little Olivetti portable typewriter, very sturdy, and I wrote Carrie on it, Blaze, and a bunch of other stuff as well. I guess I wrote Shawshank on that typewriter too, on a kitchen table in Boulder. I went ahead and I rewrote it and sent it in, and they, were, they liked it at Scribner, so we're going to do it. Um, and that was before the obviously before the book came out. So um, so yeah, all the all the proceeds from this book go towards that foundation, um, which I don't know the state of it currently, but I don't know. I'm sure it's still around in some incarnation because he I know that he uh, he helped launch it. I believe he like did a like a live event or a fundraiser or something with J.K. Rowling and John Grisham and a few others to like help launch this thing. So I know that there was like a lot of big power behind it. 
Um, but yeah, a few other things from the Lilja interview. He says the first draft was 173 pages. And you mentioned this earlier, Dan, but yeah, he says he essentially rewrote the first 100 pages, which I think is notable as we move deeper into our discussion, because when we talk about sentimentality, I, I sure think a lot of it's still there in the in the end, yeah. um, which almost makes me wonder if he ran out of time. He's like, I don't have time to rewrite the end of it. So <laughs> we're just going to go with what I initially mm-hmm. had. Um, so, yeah, uh, before it was published, Stephen Spignacy, who had access to King's unpublished works and and uh, in the library, uh, he wrote a little bit about Blaze in the lost works of Stephen King. He described the plot in detail and suggested that the book felt like a Bachman novel. And that was before it was officially designated as one. So that was from the lost works of Stephen King, which obviously came out years before this release. Um, critical reception. This is not a book that it was easy to find reviews for. I don't think it was reviewed by a lot of people. Um, I think it was a pretty muted release and considered probably because it was a Bachman book, non-essential. I could not find any New York Times reviews, Entertainment Weekly reviews, and they usually cover every king. Uh, I did find an AV Club review uh, from Tasha Robinson. She wrote, nothing about this description A long rejected novel, rapidly rewritten and rushed to press, sounds particularly promising, but until its abrupt ending, Blaze is one of King slash Bachman's better reads, a bare, breathless thriller that minimizes King's usual quirks and picadillos while leaving plenty of room for his talent with characterization and vivid real-world scenarios. It ends, the sense of looming doom, like the mixed sympathies, the speedy crime caper writing, and King's typical attention to telling specific detail all make Blaze irresistible at least until King wraps things up in a few bare, unsatisfying paragraphs. Dan, are you going to have some words about that? You're talking to me about yeah, uh, talking yeah. To you. I, I, I'm I, look. I, I mean, I'm surprised. Am I the only one who I thought the pro? This is some of King's most economical, effective prose. I really enjoyed it quite a bit. I, I didn't find it sentimental or mawkish or overwrought or anything. I agree with the the. I don't want to say the ending ran out of steam. I'm, I'll wait till we get to misery. There's sort of a structural device that to me becomes imbalanced in the second half of the book. Mm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I just have to flat out disagree. I don't, I mean, I guess <laughs> the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Right. But like, yeah. I just, I'm just, I think poking, the, I'm just poking at you. I know. I mean, I, I'm so, I look at, I thought we were all going to agree. This is a masterpiece. But fine, <laughs> I guess I'll just fucking go. No, I agree with you. Person's too. baby, I guess. Yeah. 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 Jen, back me up. <laughs> I do. Yeah. I, and I really like the ending. I think maybe the second time I've read it. And I think I find that a lot is when I have issues with an ending, I don't mind it so much the second time. And it actually kind of, mm. it grows on me a lot. And I think I found like it fits with who I see Blaze being more. Yeah. You know, I don't. Well, he's just Blaze being Blaze. Blaze being Blaze. He is just Blaze being Blaze, you know? Blaze being Blaze. Well, he, King to me <laughs> almost feels like he has a very tight control and a. And yeah. a he feels very measured here when he's writing. Like, I don't, I, I mean, it's a short book. And also I, he doesn't do that thing where he just goes on four sentences too long about anything ever in this. I don't think, and not that that necessarily makes the prose good, but on top of that, I feel like he's very visually evocative here. He doesn't get too hammy. I mean, to me, the ending, I guess the ending doesn't feel sentimental because it, it feels fairly unforgiving to me. Like yeah. I, I feel like the sentimental King or the, hokey king or whatever else would have gone to great lengths to show that blaze is just a good misunderstood guy but he doesn't he shows him killing people I mean, he kills this fucking old lady and then the, yeah. the, when you steal like blaze is still like a bad dude i mean maybe it's not his fault because of 
being dropped on his head multiple times or whatever else. But I I think if King if King wanted to, he could have made him like a John Coffee, right? And he doesn't. He still yeah. recognizes no, this guy is a murderer. He does bad things. At the end of the day, he still is endangering this little baby that he stole. So yeah, I just flat out disagree with with all of this. And I, I mean, I, I mean, have that a an I have a counterpoint to you that <laughs> I will raise a little bit later. Yeah, I know it wants uh, to get into characters and stuff. Yeah, for sure. Okay, uh, this is from something called Onyx. I believe this review is written by Bev Vincent, who is King Scholar, somebody we've had in the pod before. Very smart. Um, uh, he wrote, Blaze is not as sophisticated as King's more recent works, but it is an early harbinger of, of his skills. Uh, the fundamental success of the book relies on characterization, which has always been King's forte. His ability to make readers root for a con man, robber, thief, kidnapper, and killer makes Blaze stand out. Blaze is a predecessor to the stand's Tom Cullen, another simple man who experienced flashes of brilliance. If Tom had fallen under the wrong influences, he might have ended up in similar circumstances. So those were the only reviews that I was able to to rustle up, but I think that's okay because, um, I don't know, this isn't the kind of book where I'm particularly interested in sort of intellectual reads on its like deeper ideas because I don't think this book is particularly aiming for anything profound which is a strength of it I agree, uh, yeah. this is yeah this is absolutely kind of a dime store paperback kind of book it's and, all um, about the yeah. the narrative as opposed right. to like a lice or lissy story right which right. Is, which is actually not a very narrative novel if you think about it it's mostly mm-hmm. backstory it's more about what it's saying and yeah and i agree with you that's a total strength it's it's about i mean it's almost like it's beholden to the outline. It's beholden to the speed of which it moves. It's beholden to the genre. And I, I think that's all great. I think that's what I mean when I feel like it's not belabored or trying to yeah. do too much. But because it's king and because it has this kind of angle of, oh, yeah, what if the mice and men dudes are criminals and one of them was dead? And the go- like that's pretty much it, right? That to me is enough of th- – that is so aesthetically and visually interesting to me that I don't really need it to say much. See, I, anyway, I, yeah. I, I, just on that point, though, it's like when you say it, doesn't need to do too much. I don't think it did enough. And mm-hmm. it is to me interesting to hear it like compared with Salem's Lot and Carrie, because you're like, what if King had submitted this as his first novel? Like, would he even have the success he has now? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a good question. You know, I, I don't mind this being a, you know, tertiary novel in my opinion, but I just can't see this being held up in the same, with the same esteem, I guess, as some of those other novels. Yeah, you know, this is something Jen and Mike and I have talked about a lot in our archive series where, you know, we've really spent a lot of time, I think, peeling back College King and Mm -hmm. the writer he wanted to be then, which was not particularly a horror writer. Like this was it was really a matter of circumstance that he ended up being a horror writer. It was because what Carrie was his fifth or sixth book, I can't recall. And um it was the first horror book he had written. He had written genre. Like he had certainly written horror stories. A lot of his early work, the stories were creepy, but a lot of his, uh, you know, you read like stud city, right? I know you guys have all read that, you know, which is featured in, um, and uh, the body we did, you know, we have a whole archives episode where we talked about those stories and those were very much stabs at sort of literary fiction. Um, he was definitely trying to write like a, probably a lot of the writers he was reading in college. And I think that, you know, as much as he liked genre, he was still trying to write those quote unquote adult novels. And um, and that is where I think the tension really lies. And so Flieger, I think that's such a good question of like, what if a different book had been published first? It really would have changed the entire trajectory of his career. Like this choice to lead with Carrie and Salem's Lot for his, you know, it's not accidental, but it was literally a matter of the right person reading the right 
uh, manuscript at the right time, that really helped contribute to his success. Because if it were up to King, he probably would have wanted to publish something like Roadwork first, because I think he thought that a book like that was more, quote unquote, important. I think he recognizes now in retrospect, especially in the uh, intro to Bachman books, he expresses an affection for Roadwork, but he also calls it you know, one of the worst. He knows it's not a very good book as he got older. So Jen, what were you going to say? Well, I think I love that anecdote about like being typecast as a horror writer, you know, and when we were talking earlier about this being a crime novel, maybe it's just that I haven't read many crime novels, but like it doesn't feel like Stephen King to me almost transcends genre at this point. Like he is Stephen King. That's his books and his books have their own kind of identity to them. And that's what stands out to me. But I think when I read something like Carrie or Salem's Lot, it almost feels like he's kind of just falling into the story. And with some of the earlier Bachmans, there feels like like a structure and a labor to it, you know, that he's trying to connect these dots. Mm -hmm. And I think there's like he just writes what he's interested in. And I think he was just really interested in horror. And that's what he was finding himself being very good at you know and mm. as he's gotten older he's I think been able to make the less horrific novels work more yeah. I have a lot of thoughts about what was going on in his personal life that allows that but that's kind of why I think this novel works because it's from an older hand that has figured out how to make this non-hack and slash and I say that with love voice work like a non-horrific novel be really compelling in a way that mm -hmm. i don't know if young king had mastered yet you know yeah cool um what do i got next here all right we are going to read the synopsis before moving into the hook so i'm going to read uh the synopsis on the back of my pocketbooks edition once upon a time, a fellow named Richard Bachman wrote Blaze on an Olivetti typewriter, then turned the machine over to Stephen King, who used it to write Carrie. Bachman died in 1985, cancer of the pseudonym. But this last gri gripping Bachman novel resurfaced after being hidden away for decades, an unforgettable crime story tinged with sadness and suspense. Clayton Blaisdell Jr. was always a small-time delinquent. None too bright either, thanks to the beatings he got as a kid. Then Blaze met George Rackley, a seasoned pro with a hundred cons and one big idea. The kidnapping should go off without a hitch, with George as the brains behind their dangerous scheme. But there's only one problem. By the time the deal goes down, Blaze's partner in crime is dead. Or is he? I think that's such a weird <laughs> synopsis. Because it plays with the idea that, like, wait, is George, like, a ghost or whatever? And I feel like that notion is dispelled pretty quickly. It's just like a figment in his head well yeah because the, the the one uh cashier sees blaze like talking to himself pretty much right so right and, and, yeah. and what also too it's funny that i mean we talked about this a lot in the in the background but yeah it's funny that we're talking about king not wanting to be marketed as a horror writer back in the day blah blah, blah because blaze like even the fucking cover of this first edition <laughs> looks like salem's lot i mean it's like i think that's yeah. why i always thought i the cover you have dan is the one i always knew and um so i think i associated it with like a haunted house or something because yeah and of that so cover. maybe they're trying I, I think maybe that's why people didn't know much about it is because it is such a mislead yeah because there's no point at all where you're supposed to think george is still is alive or and my copy too is like a creepy empty car with blaze written in the windshield like oh you have the same one john yeah like, <laughs> it's like and shining there's a, or something and there's like a yeah, yeah. And there's like a there's like a ghostly hand in the bottom corner like touching the window it's like and like that back cover is written like 
a horror synopsis. And I feel like whoever wrote that synopsis read maybe the first 50 pages and then, <laughs> you know, and then wrote the synopsis. Like it's like, you know, some intern who's like got their plate full. And uh, I don't know. I found it very jarring because I really, I feel like the, the story, if you really need to focus on the event, like focus more on the kidnapping, you know, it's like not really yeah. about George necessarily. This is really a character study at the end of the day. And one thing I really love about this novel is that it doesn't try to pretend that George is alive. Like yeah. I, I would have rolled my eyes so hard if at the end, oh, George had been dead the whole time. Like I like that right out of the gate, we know that he's mm-hmm. dead, you know? Yeah. But I also think like the title is kind of like, Blaze doesn't seem like a name either, you know? Like it almost kind of has got that fire starter kind of feel to right. it. Right, I always thought it was like, fire haunted house something right. burned down yeah. that was the vibe i always had i i same thing i thought like firestarter alternate title could have been blaze as i yeah. was reading through this um and yeah it, going to what dan said to like there was a period where i was like i wonder if george can physically interact with the world but then once i think it was the cashier that noticed him sort of vocalizing george's presence and it reminded me a lot of like both fleabag if you guys watched that series mm-hmm where she breaks the fourth wall, but gets caught breaking the fourth wall by another character during the show, which is cool. And uh, sort of scenes from beautiful mind where he allows sort of the people in his head to like watch the baby while he goes in the other room. Yeah. Um, Cause I, I was waiting for that moment of like, is George going to break into this reality? And I, I didn't think it was going to happen and I didn't expect it to, but I, deep down I was like, Oh, as the first time reader of this novel, I, I did want to know like what the limits of George's presence were. And uh, again, I, this does feel like a book that was written by a young person. Yeah. yeah. Any other thoughts? For, <laughs> yeah. Any, any other thoughts before we move into the hook? Cool. Let's move into the hook. Ah, yes. Don't you see? Don't you see how clear it all is? Not only can you see the future, you can, I can change it. You can change it. Exactly. Okay, the hook is where we talk about um, what is this book about? What is it trying to do? What are the given circumstances? What's orbiting around this book? What are we thinking about? I, you know, I started this, the kind of first topic I put here on the on our little, you know, agenda is I wrote the final Bachman book, which I think is notable. Um, and I think there's a lot of questions you could ask, uh, like, as a as a Bachman book, I do want to ask this question. I don't want to like belabor it, but what is Bachman esque about this book? Like, what are the elements that stand out to make it a Bachman book? Uh, like that Steven Spignacy guy mentioned before, it was classified as one that he thought it was a Bachman book. So, why do you? What do you? What are the traditional elements of Bachman that you see in here, uh, Dan Caffrey? What do you think? For me, yeah, because I feel like I'm the one who said, "Oh, I feel like this is the." I should I should rephrase that. I I think it's the epitome of what he said a Bachman book was back in the day. If that makes sense, not like you know, it's not like Rage, it's not like The Long Walk, it's not like Roadwork, but I feel like the sort of Bachman mythos has always been, oh, it's um, less supernatural. Which, as we established, I don't think Blaze is a supernatural novel well i don't know you know what i will say because the baby sees him at the end that might be supernatural i don't know yeah that's just some abigail mother Abigail. (laughs) i always think of her (laughs) she coos right isn't she oh baby 
And then they have the Hallmark credits uh, goes. Love through. it. Actually, I, I love the Stan mini series. No shit. Yeah. Um, we all do. We've we've devoted like thirty hours of this podcast. <laughs> right. So, so the the non supernatural element. The I, I like I said. I think this is actually a very dark novel as far as the events that are laid out almost comically so i think bachman is a twisted sense of humor once again king mm-hmm. is a twisted sense of humor too but in here you really do i, I think it, it it does not feel like a tragedy because he there almost seems to be a glee in how dark all the events are in it um i guess the king's never said bachman is hard-boiled per se but i guess just the crime element right like i feel like with the, maybe the exception of the long walk the Bachman novels all very much have to do with crime, right? Like Rage is a school shooter. Uh, Thinner is this uh, mafioso lawyer. Um, even the Running Man, right? Like he's yeah. contesting with all these kind of this kind of corrupt government uh, officials. Maybe the Regulators, not so much. I guess the Regulators is supernatural. That's the like Regulators the, is a weird, bo- weird book to be a Bachman book. I, that's something we're going to talk about. In, in yeah, I, I almost feel like yeah. Regulators is. I think he just wanted to write twin novels and thought it was right. funny to have one. Be Absolutely. Be That's where I'm like, I think the distinctions are breaking down, you know? Yeah. No, and, exactly. uh, but no, I think you're right, Dan. I think it's like what really characterizes Bachman is, is uh, a meanness like, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, mean. a, 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 a chilliness and then a very dark sense of humor, like a very dark and wry sense of humor. Like how George yeah. is, is like Bachman to me, I guess mm-hmm. that is the, like the, the Bachman tone is very much um, George's role in this book. Well, I think yeah. there's also like I, I look when I think of Bachman, I think of the scene when he kidnaps the baby and he, you know, there's a cat and the cat like draws the old woman down and he can't do anything but punch her. And when he punch, it's almost <laughs> kind of funny. Yeah, it's almost kind of funny, like the way it's written, like not in a in a gleeful ha ha kind of way, but in a kind of, oh, geez, like. Like this big lug, not knowing what to do, and this cat well, does he is gets scared by. He, yeah, he talks about her, her looking scary because she has hair curlers. Like she's in a sci-fi movie, and he freaks right. out. Like that's kind of funny if you, if you think mm, about it. It's yeah. like Back to the Future. Yeah, no, it exactly. Yeah, and it doesn't linger on the tragedy of it. Like yeah. it, uh, at least of that woman, it lingers on Blaze's tragedy as we go on, and that's where I think the the Kingian um, uh, sense is bursting through. Because I don't think if this were a uh, road workian uh, or long walkian kind of or running manian kind of a book that we would get that kind of deep sentimentality that we get with blaze this uh this this um deep sense of empathy and sympathy that i think radiates uh, off the uh, narrator towards that character whereas all the other characters on the other hand i think are treated with that bachman uh wryness that that kind of like these aren't fully real people and it's kind of fun to watch them suffer to some degree yeah yeah it's i i struggled to uh just to keep it going regulatorian (laughs) <laughs> since, um, it, it's i because in my mind Raging. i was like oh no i yeah exactly like thinatorian or something mm. um it's i struggled though to classify the bachman like you know i saw the, your prompt randall and was like what does make this a bachman book but i like to think that they're similar but i do think they they sort of all go off in their own direction and there are these crime elements there is a cruelty to these that is a little different than maybe most mainstream king um I don't know. It's it's almost like the Twitter draft novel. It's it's like it's the idea is there. They don't always feel very finished. And I do love some of the Bachman books, like Long Walk, Long Walkian guy here. <laughs> um, but this one again, though, it does it. There was nothing in it that I. Once I kind of got the the beat of it, I was like able to predict, which I'm sure most readers have. Like, okay, it's not going to work out for Blaze. You know, like 
when they were going into like him on the farm, you're like, okay, when does this blow up in his face? It, it sort of loses the luster over time because you kind of, you can kind of see it coming. Whereas some of my favorite King novels, you don't know where they're going and you think you might have an idea of the formula and it just doesn't work out that way. Whereas this mm-hmm. and a lot of the Bachman novels in general, they, they do sort of adhere to a little bit of like a structure that we can kind of an see. An established structure. Yeah. Yeah and, and, yeah. and the fact that he compares it so often to other great novels mm. makes me feel like he's trying to elevate the quality of the work by comparing it, but I don't think it holds like, for example, like does anyone read Vonnegut here, but there's the Kilgore trout character, which is like an alter ego of Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah. And he's sort of a failed sci-fi writer. And a lot of the Vonnegut novels will just sort of give like the elevator pitch of some of his. So he wrote a story about this and this is what happened. And that's how I feel about a lot of the Bachman stuff. It's like if King could pitch, in a couple sentences to be like, and get this, the guy was this. And then it turned out it blew up in his face. So there, there, I don't know. There's, a, there's a sense of it being like half baked, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. And I think like I rereading Roadwork, he name drops Vonnegut specifically. I think yeah. that he was name dropping a lot of his, uh, of his influences and the things that he was studying. I mean, all this stuff was still rich in his head and he wasn't, he was still finding himself as a writer in a lot of these. I mean, look at how, clearly uh beholden this is to of mice and men in terms of just setting up a dynamic uh, the central dynamic one of the things that drives it i mean and that makes a lot of sense i mean any writer will tell you that the earliest like the best way to start writing is to imitate to write Mm -hmm. something that imitates work that you admire and then you eventually will find your voice out of that and so i think that there is an element of that in bachman's work where he was emulating other writers and look at how many writers he name dropped just in the foreword that he wrote uh he which have you guys read any of those i mean i I imagine they're like old pulp paper you know like dime store paperback kind of crime novels which um i've read a little uh, of like John McDonald, who King always cites. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, I'm by no means an expert in hard-boiled crime, but I've, I've read a few things here and there. I mean, it's always funny because he almost seems to aspire to that. Just the way he talks about it, he almost, ta- almost talks about it with more reverence than he does about horror. Like, I feel Absolutely. like he almost, he almost mm-hmm. views these guys, you know, like the Dashiell Hammett books or whatever else, I feel like he almost views them as like the cool kids club that he wants to be in. And look, I've read a few of those books. They're all right, but... I kind of be like, no, King, you're cooler than them. You don't need to be. You don't need to do. But I think Holly these Gibney. were the Come books. On. Yeah, these know, were the yeah. books that his dad left him. I think like those are the mm. ones that were in the attic that he read. Where mm-hmm. I, I think they're, you know, because whenever he talks about horror influences, I mean, obviously there are writers that heavily influenced him, but he talks a lot about comic books. You know, yeah. When it comes to horror, he talks a lot about comic books and and uh, things of that nature, like stuff that was visual. Like he talks so much about movies. You know what I mean? Like when you read Don's Macabre, it's so much about. Uh, film and and radio and things like that. I think that was where the horror influence came from a bit more. I think when it comes to literature, he was reading so much crime, and that obviously, I mean, that pervades through the entirety of his work, but not never so more so pronounced. I think than this or these early runs of books, the, a lot of the Bachman stuff, and then what he's up to over the last decade. You know what I mean? It's yeah. uh, I feel like these. It's almost a full circle kind of thing. So, um, but yeah, I am very intrigued by the the willingness with which he drops like so many different names. Uh, Jen, what were you going to say? Well, there's like, when I think about what makes a Bachman book, it's like, there's an anger and there's Mm -hmm. a detachment, you know? And I think a lot of that stems to like his addiction issues, which is something we talked about a lot in the regulators desperation episodes. Um, But there's also like, 
I feel like he kind of aspires to this emotional detachment, which is what to me characterizes a lot of Bachman is like, Mm. I feel like Bachman does not like his characters and Stephen King does. And I feel like, you know, knowing that this was something his father left him, like, I imagine there's an allure to letting go of that emotional attachment because emotions hurt sometimes. And that I feel like that's maybe what he's trying to do do with Bachman but the reason that I love King is because of that emotional connection and I feel like like Blaze is a Stephen King character and he's living in a Bachman world you know like everything I think that's 100% right yeah yeah and it reminds me of like what he said about Ben Mears like he had this plot in mind and then Ben Mears wanted to be bigger and he wanted to be more and that's kind of what I see with Blaze is he just it's like I can feel Bachman and King like at war and like when you switch back and forth between like the flashbacks that feels like King and the present like we're dropping the ransom note that feels like Bachman and I really like this I think is like a final Bachman because it almost feels like he's putting him to rest in a way that I think like I feel like if it bleeds is kind of like the end of a chapter and it's like him coming full circle with this phase of his career that's kind of what I see Bachman or that's what Blaze is doing you know yeah, yeah, I no, think the, I, yeah, go ahead. Uh, no, I was gonna say, I think that's a really good uh, comparison, Jen, like very apt understanding that this does feel like a Stephen King character existing outside his universe, because mm-hmm. I saw so much Tom Cullen in this and like what yeah. path mm-hmm. Tom could have taken to perhaps end up as Blaze. Like, I think those mm-hmm. are sort of like twinner characters in a way. Yeah, because Cullen is in a King book, you know. I think the anger is really key to it as well. And Mm -hmm. I think that there's so much, I mean, you know, there's some of this in later books, but there's so much class resentment in in Bachman work and there's so much political anger, which makes total sense. I mean, he was writing these when he was really young. He was fresh out of college. Uh, Jen, you know, in the archives, we have talked a lot about his political beliefs coming out of college, how they've evolved over the years. Um, You know, when he wrote a lot of these Bachman books, it was, he was poor. Like he was, you know, uh, like he said, he wrote, it was writing them on the back of of milk receipts or, or sales slips, if you want to call them that and um you know he was i th- that's where i think that anger came from was the struggle of mm-hmm. raising children and uh not knowing when you know if you're going to be able to play pay the electric bill that month and also uh you know seeing uh tragedies in the news all the time and then also um you know seeing the rich take more the poor get less like these were all things he was railing against when he was in college and and those sentiments are never more i think starkly obvious than in the bachman works you know yeah but i think like writing now in 2007 king has put a lot of that anger to rest which is why Mm -hmm. I feel like this book is ultimately kind of making peace with that anger and that's why I think you know I don't want to step on our character conversation but like Blaze doesn't seem angry about his lot in life it's like we are supposed to feel angry for him you know and I almost kind of feel him like making peace or he's writing it from a perspective of remembering that angry man but not being that angry man yeah it's, it's especially like an angry young man yeah, I think really comes across, and that's like when I joke that this has like a Twitter draft element to it. It's the thing <laughs> that you would you would tweet off, but then not send, and maybe sit on and be like, "Yeah, maybe I'm happy I didn't yeah. end up putting that out under my name." And um, take some yeah, expletives out, you know? Exactly, exactly. Like it's whether it's relevant as King can do sometimes politics from a certain generation, you know, <laughs> us looking in, we get, we're like, "Oh, okay, this is how it sounds like when you pop off as like a." 
however you want to define his politics. But I feel like with this, you really do get the sense of like, yeah, it's it's an angry young man. And the fact that he had not yet made it and maybe was resentful that he had not yet, you know, made it in the mainstream. Mm -hmm. I, I do think there is like an undertone with this and a lot of the Bachman novels of there's an anger, but it, it stems from like a frustration of maybe not feeling like he got the spotlight yet that he d- so thinks he deserves kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good segue into the question I wanted to ask about what elements of this feel like a young person's novel, you know, like, I think we all we've all had experience with writing to various degrees. And I will say like, sentimentality is definitely uh, something that I think is very prevalent in young writing or undeveloped writing. Because Jen, you mentioned that you mentioned this about Blaze not being an angry character, uh, that he's not as mad at the world as he could be. I agree with that. The where the youthfulness comes in is that he like wants us all to feel so sorry for Blaze. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's like, I think when I look at Blaze, all I can think about is, you know, this guy, this big, dumb, but also kind of brilliant lug who uh just wants to be loved and who is slowly being uh broken like and what's the word i'm looking for like he is uh he is experiencing a kind of rebirth by having this baby with him right Mm -hmm. and i think king who's very tall and very gangly and you know especially at this time he people described him as being a pretty large person he took up a lot of space i think about uh this being king sort of manifesting the brokenness he sees in himself on Mm. page. Mm -hmm. And this was around the time when he probably had, uh, you know, Naomi was probably still a baby. I'm not sure if Joe was born by this point, but he wasn't too far off. I know that. And he was this guy who, you know, do a little, if you know your research about King in college, he was a pretty chaotic person. He was drunk all the time. He was writing all the time. He was very well known on campus. He posed in ads. He had the huge, crazy beard. He was a big he was kind of a big lug in his own way. I think mm-hmm. he had a he had a reputation for being a bit of like uh, a whirling dervish. And so I think that he was reckoning with uh, growing, becoming an adult, becoming like, quote unquote, a real person. And so I think the tenderness with which he engages with this child and uh, this desire to be understood and to be accepted and to be loved, all these things that Blaze are while being completely shit on by the world around him, that is very much to me the kind of narrative of someone who is young and very insecure. Mm-hmm. And uh, And like I said, like, and also in the process of sort of discovering himself outside of that realm of college or wherever it is that he came from. Um, I think a lot of that, I like that's where I get to that idea of like, and this is, I think, what he was laughing about in the intro about the over sentimentality and the laughing at it. Because I think sometimes if you portray a character as so put upon, um, it does become funny. But the thing Mm. is that is our tendency when we're young and not fully emotionally developed is to think that all the bad things are happening to us and us only. We feel sorry for ourselves, you know? And Mm -hmm. that to me is, I see that leeching into that, this story. And that to me is a very writerly sort of thing. Yeah. Young writers. Yeah. And and I I think, go ahead. I was just gonna say, but I feel like the humor makes it not sentimental though. Like, I don't know. I, I, cause even when blaze dies, 
I mean, this is such the bad version of this. I feel like if it was overly sentimental, it would be like, oh, and we need to say a prayer for Blaze or something stupid like that. Like <laughs> the I kind of, well, my, laid on him. I feel like the stripped down nature my of the prose. My Blaze would yeah, be, would, <laughs> he was just being Blaze. Just Blaze, just blaze being Blaze. Blaze being Blaze. <laughs> I, I, I feel like because the prose is so stripped down, how'd he phrase it in the intro? Like bare-faced or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like that's what holds the sentimentality back, and that's what I love about it. I mean, hey, Look, agree, disagree. Some people can spot genius from a mile away. Uh, <laughs> other people are going to... No, I'm, I'm kidding. But like that to me is why it doesn't feel sentimental. But I, um, I, 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 I guess hear what you guys are saying too. Some of the sentimentality though, I think does come across the... Because obviously like there's the Of Mice and Men comparison. Mm. But I saw a lot of uh, the like the jungle with like Yerkes, mm. the, you know, the sort of like big oaf that's trying oh, yeah. to do well, but just being crushed. And I think as young writers go, they might be like, well, this is my take on mice and men. And you start yeah. to realize that like true artistry is not taking what already exists. You have to kind of carve out your own thing, not just, Oh, what if I put a twist on this existing thing? And I, <laughs> I feel like this novel, at least to me comes across as this sort of like, well, let's think of mice and men and Lenny, but let's update it with, you know, yeah. 1970s street rat I don't, I don't even know it just doesn't it, it <laughs> but you know but it, it feels like it takes like it's like oh we're gonna take this existing sort of like archetype of this big dumb you know oh he's a i mean i don't know i'm getting more upset now that i think about too like you <laughs> like like in blazing saddles like mongo like the guy that punches the horse right and it's like oh he's big and dumb but he's actually a sweetheart deep mm-hmm. down and that's well it's, it's a, a trope, trope right that's what i'm saying yeah, yeah it's a trope though that i've seen o- over and over so that's well, what takes away from some of this. Well, that's where I want to talk too, is that obviously there's archetypal things that, that writers use to, you know, help familiarity and, and breed all those sorts of things. And then there's tropes, right? Like tropes that are sometimes, uh, you know, useful for a reason, uh, but also sometimes over familiar to the point of stereotype. And I think a lot about the movie Barton Fink, uh, when basically Barton Fink gets hired to write, you know, quote unquote, a wrestling picture for Hollywood, which is the kind of thing they churn out every week over there. And they have a very standard script that they want for it. And they're like, okay, so you've got this big wrestler and he can either uh, have a girlfriend that softens him or he has a young orphan street urchin child that helps soften him. And that's that's the arc. Like those are kind of the two options he's presented with in terms of how these templates work. And then when Barton says, I don't know, maybe he has both like he's looked at like he's a complete idiot <laughs> because it's like, no, you don't deviate from the formula. And mm-hmm. so I think when I read this uh, story and again, I'm not necessarily criticizing it. I'm just saying that the tropes here are adhered to, uh, I think, a bit more fastidiously than they would have had King started from scratch with this story a little later. I mean, the crime the crime aspects of this story are broad almost to the point of, of comedy, and I'm not sure it's all intentional comedy. I mean, these are the kind of gangsters who have names like Moochie and mm-hmm. Hervey and like Bernie. It's like they all have I.E. Georgie, you know? There was one that was really funny. Hold on. There was Moochie, and then there was uh, one other name that was cracking me up. Um, I'll find it eventually. But anyways, it's like, uh, and then 
you know, when they're all hanging out in bars and stuff like that, it's like, hey, see, yeah, mm-hmm. we're going to go rob them. See, you know, it's like that kind of uh, Dick Tracy kind of villain almost, which I think is like very much what King that that's what the books that he references, the movies that he grew up watching. That was very much how these things were portrayed. And so he's definitely, you know, leaning into those conscious or unconscious influences as they manifest here. Um, so, yeah, again, not a bad thing, but definitely something I think a more experienced writer would and this is what i think you're getting at flieger a more experienced writer somebody who had been through this a little more would find the archetypal use of these things rather than the stereotypical use of these things the um like take the trope and help transcend it rather than sort of recycle it uh which i think kind of happens here a little bit um yeah agreed it's it turns the criminal underworld into the weasels from who framed roger that was yes the weasels i was thinking Mm. about I love the weasels, by the way. I do too. And you know, that restaurant scene reminds me of the writing exercise that he writes about in On Writing. You know, mm. I kept finding myself thinking, like smelling the onions, you know? And that's, I think, what makes this feel like a younger, not necessarily a younger man's work, but like a younger King novel. Like the playground bully scene reminds me a lot of the one in Salem's Lot. Like Moochie Welch is a character oh, from Christine, yeah. who I love. Um, so love it just Moochie. feels like, from me too, from the mindset of young King, you know? Whenever I hear Moochie, I think of uh, that Seinfeld episode, Kenny Rogers with the chicken restaurant. And <laughs> uh, then uh, he's like, I only, knew, for anybody. I, only knew, I only knew you through Moochie. <laughs> Bad chicken, mess you up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, the only other thing I'll say about work of a young writer, I and this is because it drives me crazy, and I am guilty of this, so I am certainly not judging anyone, but something I've noticed that happens in a lot of early work by people is the whole trope of uh, a dead person haunting the protagonist and kind of following them around, commenting on the action, commenting on what they're doing. I think it's a it's sort of an easy way, I think, for a writer to um, to manifest uh, the doubts that a character is having or the fears or the anxieties that a character is having rather than find more organic ways to show those things you literally bring a character into the world who only they can see who represents all of those things i don't think it's a bad thing and sometimes it can be utilized really well but it is a trope that i have certainly utilized in my earliest work and i think that um like calf i'm sure you've probably encountered this at some point like in the early days of your writing or at least just somebody who worked on a lot of new plays the like, wise cracking uh, ghost wise cracking ghost <laughs> yeah, man. You love it, yeah. yeah i'm trying to th- you know i'm trying to think if i've ever had a a wise cra- i'm sure i've done i mean i've done a bunch of dumb shit well here's plays, the thing yeah. i prefer the wise cracking ghost to the ghost <laughs> that like like i've seen plays and stuff where like it's like the ghost is just always sad and like it's like your brother who killed himself or something and he's always there looking at you with sad eyes. So it's Oh yeah, I, like, I've done that. I, hate I, that shit. I had that. I've done my, it too. My yeah. very first full length play I had, um, which was like a a dark version of the nativity story. I had this shepherd who like literally sees his dead wife with like a noose around her neck, like walking around nice. being sad and shit. Oh, yeah, that, yeah, that's definitely cool, done though. that. Yeah, yeah, the that imagery was kind of the imagery was cool, but yeah, you know, I wouldn't, I would yeah. never write. Can that I kind of just say because you know? I, I did the audio book for this one and. It, the it's Ron McClarity, I think. Mm-hmm. But when he would do George, it sounded so much like George Carlin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was so funny. But, hey, it was just so. Mickey Mouse says. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Not well, and like if I think about Lisey's story, which is another book about a character, a dead character that looms very large over the protagonist, I feel like that is a much more mature take on that 
trope of like grief and letting go of somebody that was really important to you. And here he literally is in the room, you know? Yeah. Okay. I want to talk about crime fiction a little bit. So King's always had a penchant for crime stories, obviously. Um, did you guys know he published a crime story called The Fifth Quarter under the name John Swithin back in the day? I didn't know it was by Swithin, but that is in Nightmares and Dreamscapes, right? Yeah, yeah he published right? it yeah. Yeah, before, like in his earlier years to a, a men's magazine or something. And he, it's read uh, by Gary Sinise in the audiobook. Oh, nice. Mm. Love, love Lieutenant Dan. pretty good, yeah. Um, I guess I'm curious, like, how does this sort of like when you because Dan, you mentioned or Caps, like you mentioned his other crime novel stuff. And you I know not all of you have read all of his later crime stuff, but something like Colorado Kids, I mean, like Billy Summers, something like uh, the the Mr. Mercedes books or even something like Omni's Last Case, which is isn't that also in Nightmares and Dreamscapes? Yeah. 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 Like, how do you guys sort of stack uh, Blaze alongside those? Do you prefer it or uh, I prefer it? It, Here's the here's the and here's why. And it's funny because it has a ghost in it, which feels like the most Kingian thing he can do. But I feel like with a lot of these other crime novels, Joyland, Colorado Kid, Omni's Last Case, whatever, crime stories, he, uh, even the Mercedes trilogy, he always starts off committing to the hard-boiled thing, and then he kind of yeah. kings his way out of it by Absolutely. the end. Absolutely. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he does that here, despite there being a ghost. A, because the ghost is present from the beginning, and because it's not an actual ghost. It's not an actual think. ghost, yeah. And he, it just, and, you know, I like what y'all said about, you know, stereotypes versus archetypes, and he's probably guilty of veering into the former for sure. But that still at least does show a baseline knowledge of what you're riffing on, right? And yeah. and I agree with you guys. Yes, there are times where he is emulating rather than innovating, right? But that is more satisfying to me than the Hodges trilogy. And I know we haven't gotten to it yet, so I won't spoil too much. And I, I don't even hate the events that happen in the Hodges trilogy eventually, but it really does feel like he's going, okay, this is my, my version of the first-person noir narration, blah, blah, blah. And then by the end, he just is like, ah, I gotta, yeah, I gotta, he really, I he really just tears thing. that thing to shreds. Like yeah. he just, yeah, he just feels like he, he can't help himself with some of that. And I really like, I actually do like that balance in Joyland, but it is that same thing. It feels like it starts one way and then it's like, ah, but I gotta do this. You know, he just kind of <laughs> leaps off the cliff here. And I, I just think that when I met, when I said the pros had restraint and patience and all that here, I think that's why I meant he never lets himself go full king. He's staying yeah. in that Bachman mode. So I, for me, it's like my favorite of his crime novels. Um, and I think you're hundred yeah. percent correct when you say like the restraint and uh, like, he really does commit to the bit here. Like, mm-hmm. and I think that yeah, that is an element it. that makes it bachman You know what I mean? Um, is that he does, he doesn't take that. Yeah. He doesn't take like at the end when there's all the birds and everything, it doesn't turn into a dark half situation. The yeah. birds just sort Spare. of exist. Yeah, mm. they just sort of exist as whatever they want to exist as, which we'll talk about in a moment. But uh, but yeah, Jen, how about you? Like when you, how would you stack up this one to some of the other crime crime stories? Um, I would put it right alongside that. I think kind of what I agree with Dan, like it just, I, I don't care about the crime elements of the story. What I care about is the characters. And it's like, when I think about 112263, like that to me is not a time travel book. That's a book about a teacher, like falling in love. And that's kind of like this book to me is not about the crime. It's about Blaze himself. So I don't know if it's just that I, and the Colorado kid is same. It's like, that's about life in rural Maine. And that's what I love about it. Billy Summers to me is about this relationship. And so it, I, I like it a lot because it's more than a crime novel. And I don't want to say that reductively. It just, the crime element is my least favorite part of it. You know? Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll agree with that. I, 
I'll say I was least invested, I think, in this book, like during the the scene, like when he kidnaps the baby. Right. That yeah. scene for me, that was a, that was a sign where I guess I saw a younger king as well, because that sequence to me was not as compelling as as he's very good at writing action sequences. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's something that, you know, we see very often in his later stuff. He especially as he has more movies produced, he becomes much more of a cinematic writer. That's yeah. something we've definitely talked about. Uh, he doesn't have that here. He doesn't have that cinematic quality. There's a there's a th- uh, like kind of a leaden quality, a thudding quality to I think the the sort of action sequence of the actual kidnapping of the baby that that alienated me i think to some degree but the flashbacks and king himself said this he goes i think i was really more drawn to the flashbacks than the the actual crime story here mm-hmm. i agree i think the the sequences of him in the uh, boarding school of him on the bowie farm of him um uh at the the what is it the blueberry picking where he was driving yeah. the truck like that sequence was probably my favorite in the whole book you know those sequences were fantastic even just him how he met george and how that relationship played out that's where the most heart was and that's where i felt most connected to blaze yeah. and uh yeah i think that for me that is the element that works really well for me and that and that's and i'm with you jenna it's kind of true for his other ones too i i will say like Billy Summers, the parts of that, like I will say he's gotten so much better at that point with writing action that I think those were action set pieces that I was a lot more invested in, but I was never more invested. You know, it was that the central relationships that always keep me kind of most invested. And he still had that even in this early book, which is really impressive. So, yeah. Well, and I think that's what I like to stack this up against the Mercedes trilogy and the outsider, which I kind of see as an extension of that is like, I like this because I feel like he lets himself go there in a way that I think with the Hodges trilogy, he's really trying. And even though like it gets a little gopher goey and it get leans into the horrific, like I feel like he's really trying to make that crime. And I like when he just kind of lets it, lets, lets the sentimentality hang out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, anybody else think about raising Arizona? I was just about to say that, Randall. <laughs> oh, we are the connecting. stock in the head. Yeah. Well, just like the whole stealing the baby and like the clumsiness. And mm-hmm. as you said that, like I was trying to think of a way to bring that into the description here, but that's such a funny scene that I can go back and watch again and again. And something about the baby kidnapping here just didn't hit me quite the same. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I guess I, I don't want to like poo-poo it too much, but yeah, I, I, I was very let down by a lot of elements. Well, I still enjoyed reading this novel, but when you compare it, you're like, oh, this reminds me of this other thing that executed this much more gracefully. That's yeah, I mean, ultimately, to- I know I know what you mean. Like, I had the same thought where the criminal elements, like the, the, the actual caper of Blaze is, is basically, you know, 30% Raising Arizona. Like, yeah. Raising Arizona is one of my favorite comedies of all time, and it's, it's so great. And uh, so, yeah, it was hard for me to not compare that, which is, again, why I think that the flashback sequences were what worked for yeah. me the most. And, and, and I'm, yeah. I will say, because, like, I read a lot of crime, but more, like, mafia veering, mm-hmm. and I, I don't like crime fiction, um, but I also had to take, like, a lot of criminal procedure and criminal law classes and you see it's like it's much less romantic in real life and there are actually elements of like criminal law that are peppered throughout here for example like the grandmother giving a dying declaration that's Mm. a that's an exception to hearsay where you can't normally have a person make a statement and then bring it into court unless that person can then be questioned however Mm -hmm. there's an exception Mm. if you if you reasonably believe you are about to have impending death like say a car hit you and you're like the driver was wearing a hat 
they the <laughs> law will assume like okay you didn't say this to gain because you thought you were gonna die right and there there are various other elements that are peppered in but it again it it reminds me though of like a first year law student versus a third year and this reminds me a lot of like a entry level creative writing student versus a seasoned writer and it, yeah. it kind of like you can kind of see through the gaps and a little bit i guess you're saying yeah. the suspect is hatless repeat suspect, yeah. is, <laughs> suspect hatless. is hatless <laughs> directly under the sun now <laughs> let's talk about masculinity a little bit uh i think the bachman books are you know we we've talked i know we talked about that a lot with rage and with long walk and, you know, obviously those elements are present in Roadwork and in uh, The Running Man. And even in Thinner, I think Thinner is also a book about um, appearance in a lot of ways, like wanting to present a, you know, strong figure uh, to the world uh, as a man. And so I think that, you know, this idea of manhood, masculinity, what makes a man, what defines male friendship, um, those are all elements that are present in Bachman. Do we see the any of that here as well? Like, what what do you guys think this has to say about uh, masculinity and especially as it relates to parenthood? I'm looking your way, Mr. Caffrey. <laughs> well, I think, hmm. I don't know. This might sound like such a basic uh like macho observation, but I feel, I mean, y- y'all mentioned before, okay, this feel Jen talked about how this is a King character in a Bachman novel, which I think is a really great observation. And throughout the book, there's almost no chance for blaze. Like he never has a chance to make it right. And he's presented it several times with actually having these pretty vulnerable, intimate relationships with other men who are all very similar. Like John is very similar to George in many ways. He's not as mean as George, but this idea of pairing up with someone who, has a little bit more street smarts than him, who's smaller, who's meaner, et cetera. But much like Of Mice and Men, there's a tenderness to all of those male relationships that he has. But they're all doomed. Like all those guys die and then Blaze dies eventually himself. He tries to have this uh, somewhat vulnerable, intimate relationship with this baby. Same thing, that it's doomed, right? So if it is saying anything about it, I guess maybe it's that, at least in this world, in Bachman's world, in this world of crime, traditional masculinity does prohibit the um the ease of vulnerability between two men and, and mm-hmm. once again that's like a kind of a basic thing right like oh, man, no, i hard... think it's true though yeah, yeah i don't think I... have a hard time expressing their well i shouldn't say because they don't have a hard time expressing their feelings in this they the, the world just kind of kills them for it if that makes sense that would be my my read on that you're, you're reading my mind andrew tate top g okay oh, <laughs> here we go Jesus christ didn't he come up top on another graduate. podcast recently yeah. oh, <laughs> oh, hopefully hopefully never again uh no but yeah. And I agree with what you're saying, Caffrey, that there's a complexity too with, I mean, I don't know. It, it reminds me a lot of like Midnight Cowboy, the John relationship. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. there's Ratso. It's sort of like taking this person that has this asset, which in his case is like, he's a big hulking strong guy. Right. But then kind of putting like the brains with the brawn and scheming together. And it, it blaze, even though he is like this big, strong man, you do realize like inside, he kind of never stopped being a kid. Right. He, mm-hmm. he approaches the world with a, almost like an innocence that's childlike, uh, not just with his intelligence, but even just he doesn't seem to get down on himself, maybe because it's been beaten out of him, but he doesn't ever really complain. He just sort of endures it. And I think that is a trope of masculinity, like the sort of not the strong silent type per se, but he can endure it. But deep down, like you see, he is like troubled. And the the times in the novel that are the most fun is like when he is actually happy and yeah. he people look at him and they have a assumptions just based on his size but even you know like the i think there's like a taxi driver that makes a reference or the 
when he's hitchhiking the trucker and he's like, you get that? And Blaze is just like, yeah, I get it. Even when he doesn't get these references, he's just so willing to like please those around him versus like rock the boat and maybe go out on his own and have his own opinions. When you could argue also that the cause of his problems is an act of super male toxic aggression, right? Like yep. his, it's his fucking asshole drunk dad throwing him down the stairs multiple times. And I'll just say this. Uh, you got, I, I told you guys all this right before the podcast. I had to take my son's fine, but I had to take him to the ER tag. Cause I dropped him on his head by accident or I, or I wasn't holding him and he fell off the bed. I don't, I don't bring that for like Brownie sentimental points, whatever else. I'm just saying that, I was so scared about that and that, and he was fine, right? And Blaze's dad fucking <laughs> wails him down the stairs several times, right? And I just read this book, so I was immediately thinking, like, oh my God, what happened to him? He was fine, blah, blah, blah. But like that, you, you could see the seriousness of having that head injury, right? And Blaze's dad does that on purpose to him. And had Blaze been equipped with the, maybe some more conventional smarts, he maybe would have had the savvy to make those other male relationships he has work. Like he, he maybe w- could have not gotten so much into a life of crime with George, or if he had, he could have had the wherewithal to know when something was going to go south. So it's like weird. This, his dad kind of ruins his chance of ever succeeding in that world. And it's, it's an act. It's, it's an act of aggression. That's also perpetuated by the types of guys that blaze is going to interact with in his life. I was going to say, like, I think a lot of it is about the one good role model he has, right. Is the farmer. Yeah. Like the blueberry yeah. guy. And then it's like, so cl- it's so it's, this is where it is funny where it's like, yeah. wow, this one man who sees me for my talents and actually likes me and is offering me a job in a future. Oops. He died. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, just, it's yeah. like almost comical. That, and that so, was by that point. Like I was like, okay, so clearly this is not going to work out. Right. Obviously, but it's just like, and but even that character is, is that like, sequence is so well written that you really mm. like you're rooting for it, but it is doomed. And I think that, yeah, it, but I think you guys are also right. Just this self-perpetuating, uh, like confluence of bad influences, people who encourage him to be his worst. I like, you think about the headmaster at the school who essentially, you know, uh, uh, harasses him to the point that he like has to kick the shit out of him it's like you know his only way uh going to that dog farm and how abusive they are to all of him the way that they treat him and what they think he's good for and what he isn't uh they don't treat him like a person they just treat him like another dog and then uh, obviously george is a very negative influence somebody who is um funny i mean i really related to this because i had a very bad habit early in my life of being really close with guys who i thought were hilarious but who were horrible to me like they treated me like shit but i kind of hung around them because they made me laugh and you know mm-hmm. when they were fun they were great and like i love and i feel like king does a fantastic job of setting up why uh blaze is drawn to george like it, it makes sense it's not like george is this like perpetually abusive evil person like you do see why they have fun and why they get along and, wh- and then eventually since blaze is somebody who you know kind of sinks into that sidekick role uh and ends up becoming comfortable there when he does have that capacity to be something more, but he's never really has people in his life to encourage that in him. Uh, But then it's sort of, that's what the baby does in the end, right? Like, you know, the end is really, 
it's really about Blaze kind of like trying to be the one caring for someone else in the end. Like that's that if you want to talk about his self-actualization or his moment of uh, ascension in this book, you know, it ends with this image imagery of birds, you know, and I think birds can symbolize a lot of things. But one of the things they I think they can symbolize is a sort of ascension or a, uh, you know, a a sense of of life of coming to life you know even in death and so it's uh you know i think that he is finding himself as an individual as somebody who is capable of caring in that final moment and i think that's sort of the uh the journey i think that blaze goes on throughout the book at least for me i don't know what do you guys think yeah yeah and i think he has to really kind of remove himself from the world to find that because what he finds is really his strength is like this nurturing quality that he has. And I found myself thinking like, what in another world, what would it be like if Blaze could be like a daycare worker or like a a caretaker kind of role? And I mean, maybe that would have been what his life on the farm would have been more like, you know, but we just don't live in a world that lets big, tall men do that in a lot of ways. I mean, and more so now than when King wrote this. But I also see like the parenting side of this, like his father is like the anti-Blaze and like, you know, that happens because his father is a drunken asshole, but also because his mother died and because there is no um, nurturing like element in the house. And I imagine his father was probably dealing with a lot of grief, having to deal with that too. And if you have never been raised in a society that said that men can be nurturing and all of a sudden you don't have a nurturer in your house and you've got to raise this kid then I could understand wanting to drink more or I'm not justifying anything his dad does but yeah I I that it's that feels like a created scenario by the um the culture that we live in you know and like when we look at like Blaze before that like he was really studious and he was like really into books and then talking about what his son would become like I wonder what Blaze could have been without mm-hmm. yeah. his his father you know yeah. and, I, and I think and I'll give King credit for this too that Blaze trying to be more of like a nurturing parent because even like I believe in the hostage note he references like don't worry like you guys need to grease him more so his rash yeah. doesn't come he, I'll he's tell kind you what of, the good stuff is yeah yeah he's he's giving like he's giving the care that he sort of always deserved as a kid and I, I credit King though without explicitly stating it but it's you know if he was to be a parent this is the childhood maybe that he would have liked to have had and he's trying really hard but I was still waiting for that like Will Smith Fresh Prince moment where it's like, how come he don't love me, man? You know, (laughs) just waiting for him to be like, why did my dad not treat me this way? And I, again, credit to King for not explicitly following that and stating it. Instead, you're like, oh, this is, he could have been good. And maybe had he been raised this, you know, tender, loving care, he wouldn't turn out the way he did. Here's a question for you guys. I'm just thinking before what Randall said about Bachman being concerned with issues of class and specifically the anger that comes from the lower class. Um, In the end, we see this, you know, this letter from uh, baby Joe. Is that the baby's name? Joe, right? Um, yeah, babies. because it's the same as the kid in the stand. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Think about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but we see, we see a, you know, a letter from his actual parents and everything. Now, Grant, he's probably going to have a pretty good life because they come, you know, their, their money or whatever. Mm-hmm. But do you think at all King is getting at, oh, he's going to be raised by a bunch of phonies and um, blaze would have been the better father or any i i I don't know was there any probably not right because blaze is still a criminal but like yeah there was this sort of like i don't know there's this sort of like rich kid um 
hoity-toityness that I, I feel like oh, he absolutely. was maybe playing with a little bit as opposed to like the the like it was when almost you're that like, age you're really concerned with authenticity, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I was just wondering that because in many ways you could argue that Joe gives Blaze the chance to treat a kid like Blaze wasn't treated by his father, right? Like to make up for that. Yeah. But but I don't know. I don't know if Blaze has the intellectual ability to actually make that work or not. I it, it, he it, he King probably wasn't putting too fine a point on. He may have just been having some fun with taking the piss out of the upper class, but yeah. I was wondering that well, a little bit as well. And George cynically George is like, you know, he's going to grow up to be a kid that, you know, wouldn't piss on you if you were on fire kind of thing and <laughs> there's that resentment and then I think that King is trying to explore the idea of like, no, but he's still a baby and he's innocent mm-hmm. here. But then also and sadly with like uh his character as well like with Blaze even when he like wraps the baby, he wraps him too tight and it starts to almost like smother him. So like, despite his best efforts, he's still not suitable to be a caretaker. Right. He puts him down by the fire alone. And is like, Oh, don't worry. I pinned the blanket down so he can't escape. <laughs> and it's these kind of like clumsy attempts to show care and protect him. But he just, he never developed. Well, that yeah. Those are just instincts set. that were never cultivated. In right. him, and he, it's and he like, tries, yeah. but he can't do it. Right. Well, and I think like, there's an interesting shift at, the end too and i would have loved like a mist type ending where like the baby is actually killed in the shootout and then because of the fbi (laughs) and then they blame it on blaze you know i feel like that would have been like maybe a a true bachman like punch in the gut yeah i feel like yeah you're right that would have been a total bachman ending it's dark thoughts jen dark thoughts i know (laughs) dark jen has entered the chat dark jen back in (laughs) i mean you know she never truly left but um (laughs) um but yeah he like becomes the protector of this baby but he also is the one that is putting putting this baby in danger also but it's because of trying to be who he thought George wanted him to be and trying to I mean I think there's a part of it that's grief dealing with the loss of George but also it's this is who George told me to be and I'm being good by being this so it's this understanding of what a man is but then finding himself like becoming like I mean men can be fathers and men can be nurturers and like Mr. Mom is I love that movie it's probably dated but like I just love I love the idea that he finds like his true calling and taking care of this baby and I think to compare it with his parents like there is this element of like Joe is the one of the few people that actually sees Blaze but that Blaze actually sees Joe too you know Mm -hmm. even though he puts him in a lot of danger and I'd imagine if King was also staying up all night and you know mm-hmm. getting up and feeding and taking care of the kids when tabby was walking to dunkin donuts at four in the morning and being like man these rich people that have nannies that they can do it like i love my kids i'm doing this i'm yeah. like bleeding every day like I, I i feel a little of that tension too you know like the love comes from the attempt and how hard it is for blaze to care for this kid you know? right right any other thoughts on the hook before we move on to probably a quick little detour in structure and format jen i just want to say i had never thought about bachman books tackling masculinity and i absolutely love that i'm gonna well, we'll be talk more about it again. yeah we'll talk more about <laughs> it later this month. hell yes king yeah, yeah. Right. other than the regulators which is kind of an ensemble piece it's all it's all like troubled yeah. men right yeah, yeah we're pretty boys. tight tight bachman. in the head of some real bad boys yeah. bachman's yeah. for the boys no i'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> Kidding, just kidding. Bachman's for the Hell blaze. All right, let's move on to structure and format. Uh, 
Okay. Instruction format, we talk about stylistic choices, structure, format, all those things. Voice. Dan, you had mentioned that there was a a, a style trope that you got frustrated with perhaps um near the back half of the book do you want to talk about that yeah i I was gonna save it for misery because i really don't have a lot of prose that i didn't like but i'll talk about it now it's that i think the book for the most part i think king threads the needle really well with the back and forth nature of everything with the getting kind of blazes story in chronological order um then mixed with the current events with joe the one problem for me anyway that he runs into is that George is such a presence throughout, but we really don't get the George Blaze story till the very end, like in the last 10 pages, really. And that kind of bugged me a little bit. And I don't know, I guess if we were going to spend more time with them, King would have had to deviate from that format. And we would have had to have known him earlier and he would have had to have done more, more of a Lisi story kind of fractured thing. But I felt like we know George is dead and I was kind of waiting for the George saga. Like I knew we were going to meet him eventually in the past tense. And I just wanted that to be longer and meatier than it was. And by the time we get to it, it's pretty much they meet each other. They both go to prison. They have the card game. And that's kind of it, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I felt a little shortchanged by that at the end because it just felt like if the whole thing is that the past is kind of keeping up with the present in terms of scope, which I feel like the most of the novel is doing. It's almost like this parallel structure thing it has going on. You almost want the... The, whatever happened with Blaze and George to be just as exciting as the final shootout at the end with Joe. And it's just not, it almost just, it almost feels like it undercuts him as a character and that all we know is the ghost George. Um, so I feel like it was this thing where King had adopted this back and forth structure that I really liked, but then it worked against him in the end, just because of where, where George comes in that chronology. Yeah. Where he comes guys, in the chronology. Yeah. I, don't I know agree. If you guys felt similarly. Yeah. I feel like this might contribute to how you felt Flieger about this feeling a little bit unfinished because there is a rushed quality yeah. to, I think yeah. the last third of this book. Mm-hmm. And that to me strikes me also, again, I think as a younger writer sort of thing, he was so close to the end. He's like sprinting towards the end was a little bit, I think how it feels like, cause it really does feel like he's like, okay, I'm I'm trying to get fucking published. I can't sit on this all day. I've just got to like pub- I got to finish this shit. And uh and that's and it's funny because one of my main complaints and I think one of our main complaints as we've gone through the King Canon over these years is just god damn you could have cut 200 pages out of this. This is one of those books where I'm like I could have done 50 more like of this because it moves so quickly. It's such a smooth read and it's already really short, you know. I feel like this was a place where I would have loved to spend a little more time with George. So I totally agree with with you on that. Jen, what are you going to say? I feel like I'm the opposite. I I would have taken those George chapters out. Probably not actually taken them Mm -hmm. out, but I did not care anything about George, partly because I think the voice of George was so off-putting on this audiobook. Like I did not want to spend any time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I also think like the way that structurally it, it really worked for me because by the time we meet George, we're in the end game. And I can't remember if he is has actually gotten to the cave yet or if he's still kind of in in the law's office but like by the time he meets George we already know he's not going to make it out of here and so I kind of like that that's when George comes into his life is that it's not really a piece of the story anymore it feels like an epilogue to this this life you know it's all part of the end yeah 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 that's interesting one thing I did notice I think just in terms of of noticing a particular Kingian kind of trope is the way that one thing that King's so good at is when he does because he always when he's doing his third person stuff like he is here he 
he's able to shift whenever he kind of is orbiting over a particular character. He's able to so smoothly sort of shift his narrative voice so it mirrors the character that he's kind of focused on in that moment. And I'll say he even had that quality even in this book. I'm not sure how much of it was maybe added by King like in his rewrites or, you know, if it was something that was there all along. But that's something I've always loved about King is his, his very malleable sort of third person omniscient voice. Although there are moments, how did you guys feel a little bit? Cause he does his foreshadowing thing, right? Like a in lot, later yeah. books <laughs> in this, he really, he really loves the idea of being the godlike narrator. Like he, he loves to zoom out a little bit. And I have one section I'll read in heroes and villains that, that touches on this. But I think about like the woman that he sleeps with at the camp who he ends up impregnating. And we learn just that he had, has this baby out there. Like that is not information we need by any means, but that I think is King sort of relishing being that third person I- omniscient. I, I liked it when it was instances like that. Not so much when it was like, oh, so-and-so would be dead and just because he does that so much, you know? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. I really enjoyed that because what that showed, if we're going back to the parenthood idea and what Blaze could have been in another world, what Blaze could have been if his father hadn't dropped him on his head and had it's status, true. we see that in that baby because the whole idea is supposed to be that Blaze actually is very intelligent. He was intelligent until his father dropped him. And I think because we get to know about how this – child he didn't know about got adopted and ended up being very successful and smart and everything that to me i mean i mean plays into the tragedy of it like we get it's kind of dramatic i was gonna say it's like it's also the class resentment to some degree because it's about like what like this whole book is like what could he have accomplished if he had the resources right exactly if he was yeah if he was raised in a different world with different people like Mm -hmm. i feel like that and that to me reeks of like his own struggles because obviously he grew up really poor he grew up without a dad like he really struggled in those early he was working at a fucking laundry like it was not lived in a trailer with like I like that. I liked when we had even just the little things like the oh drops of A B blood because then you're like okay Blaze is gonna get caught and he, he yeah that was interesting yeah he well because and I, I enjoyed this King does this um he plays at least for me he played with like oh maybe Blaze could get away but then he drops these little forensic details and then we cut to the other side with the cops examining it or whatever and you're like oh no he's fucked you know and I, that was interesting to me but anyway I'll, yeah what 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 about Jen or, or Flieger? Well, I, just going back to the Coen brothers, it did remind me of in Big Lebowski when there's like, well, there's a little Lebowski on the way <laughs> and how there's like this other life that you're like, well, maybe that one will be OK, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. But I, yeah. I I will say just with the in terms of structure, you know, the jumping to Blaze's past and then sort of his present predicament. I didn't mind that. Like I kind of like going back and forth until the end, though, when he was kind of running and then it cuts back, and I almost felt like that killed a lot of the momentum of the final kind of confrontation with the police and being hunted down. That was the one part of the structure that kind of threw me off. I just didn't like it. I, I thought they lost a lot of the momentum that the story was building toward by suddenly just, like, departing and talking. I, I think it might have been, like, talking about the farm or further details on that. and Just yeah. in terms of structure, that that's something that did throw me off as well. Yeah. Jen? I liked that section. Um, it reminded me of the the like one of the sections in Firestarter where like the OJ cop or the the shop agents are like tracking Andy and Charlie down and we keep like popping into them and it's got this like really faceless feds kind of vibe to it that but it yep. also kind of like tied into my whole kind of read of it is just like like it really put pits blaze against the world and that's that's what i do like about it but i can see your point as that it ta- like it it does kind of get a little confusing like where we are in the story yeah i like that is. 
I like that Blaze versus the World aspect of it, but I think one thing I like about Firestarter is those guys, like OJ and them, they do have, like, more clearly defined personalities. Right. Like, they are characters a little bit more. That was one thing I struggled with in this was those – this is also where it felt a little rushed to me. Those those detectives and cops all kind of blended together for me. I wasn't going to tell you of, like, one of their names. Yeah. yeah. Whereas, like – King is usually so good at henchmen, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. like um giving us really like distinct henchmen. So that's obviously a skill that he developed later. Like, you know, there is like a version again where there was like 50 more pages or 100 more pages and we got a little more George and we got a little more like, I don't know, intensity or or insight with these detectives and stuff like that. Could have been cool, not I mean not necessary, but it is uh, an interesting what if. So yeah. Any other thoughts here before we move on? Cool. Let's do Heroes and Villains. I'm gonna have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the Losers Club, Master! <laughs> okay, Heroes and Villains. Not a lot here. We're mainly here to talk about Blaze. Um, there was there were some interesting sections, I think, where we got some... Like, I don't think King is particularly interested in... in in like digging into Blaze's mind in the same way as he is with like characters in later books. But we get some moments that I think are interesting. Let me find the right page here. 186 and 187. Um, and I think this ties a little bit to what we were saying about foreshadowing. But um, so this is when he was uh, putting on like a disguise. And he said he vaguely realized he was actually making himself more conspicuous rather than less. But maybe that was all right. What else could he do anyway? He couldn't help being six foot whatever. All he could do was try and make his looks work for him rather than against him. He certainly didn't realize that he had done a better job of disguise than George ever could have. No more than he realized that George was now the creation of a mind working at a feverish half crazed pitch below the burnt out surface of stupidity. For years, he had identified himself as a dummy, coming to accept it as just one more part of his life, like the dent in his forehead. Yet something continued to work away beneath the burnt-out surface. It worked with the deadly instinct of living things, moles, worms, microbes, beneath the surface of a burnt-over meadow. This was the part that remembered everything, every hurt, every cruelty, every bad turn the world had done him. I found the burnt-over thing interesting because it felt to me like a stab at giving weight or meaning to the nickname like blaze itself mm. like did you guys oh, feel like I there was that. but did you think that there was meaning to blaze or was it or was it just like on burning love there's a character named blaze <laughs> blaze being blaze <laughs> i thought it was just a character named blaze and you know of getting a gangster shorthanded, I guess, like like the Moochie mm-hmm. kind of thing. But it is weird because Blaze doesn't really suit him as a nickname. You know, I feel like his nickname should be like Ox or something like yeah. that. Uh, <laughs> or Tiny. Yeah, Tiny, yeah. exactly. See, that's how I felt too. Huh, that's like, interesting. There's got to be a significance to this name. And, or at least, I don't know, because it, it just seems so, like even when he's in school or like, you know, at the, like when he gets that nickname when he's in the boys' home, I don't think they ever explain like why they started calling him that. It's just because his last name is Blaisdell, I think. Oh, like that's where it comes from. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I think. Now I'm oh, you stupid. didn't get the. That was, oh, well, you know, no, I, yeah, but I, I mean, I do think like 
And okay, I was distracted by this because when I taught, I had a student named Blaze who. Oh, okay. You know, I feel like it's a more popular name these days. It is now. Yeah. His, I, I'm not going to identify anymore about this real person who lives. <laughs> Anyways, Jen, but, I'm like, sure we can find out who yeah. this is. <laughs> Wait, let's well, dox him. Yeah. Let's just say he reminded me of this character, Blaze, in a lot of ways. Um, but like, I feel like when I think of what a Blaze is, there's like an inevitable quality to it. Like, that's not a fire you're going to be able to put out. You know, it's going to have to take its course. Mm -hmm. And so I guess if I were to try to like put that nickname on what feels like a really sensitive character, once we get to know him, it's like the damage has been done and his fate is sealed to a certain extent, you know, which I think is kind of like the scorched earth kind of kind of vibes, you know. Well, that's yeah, the, what I think it's, yeah, this piece is getting at is like, mm -hmm. maybe it, it appears that way to other people, like that this guy is, has like, you know, is scorched earth, yeah. but that there is like this thing that is still up, there is like this hope or, or this potential that mm -hmm. still kind of simmers beneath all of it. Still yeah. human. The fire yeah. is still burning inside. I, I was going to say just mm -hmm. in terms of obviously Blaze being Blaze is the go-to, but Blaze being Blaze. <laughs> the only other pop culture Blaze I can really think of is uh, Blaze Fielding and Streets of Rage. If anyone played that mm. video game, that's the female character. Oh, Blaze. Yeah. Right. Oh, I love Streets of Rage. Um, yeah, yeah Streets of Rage cool. 2, they just re-released it. Two, 2 is the one with Max the Wrestler, right? That's cool. And, the and Skate. Skate. Skate's awesome. What about the kid, the kangaroo? That was the third one. Well, that was the Max was the big guy, but I always like Blaze being Blaze. Blaze being Blaze. I yeah. the only other Blaze I can think of is uh, Johnny Blaze from Ghost Rider, but um, mm. the pizza, there's, uh, pizza place. There's a Blaze in um, Top Chef, Richard Blaze. Oh, oh yeah. really? Yeah. I trash him constantly when I used to, when I used to <laughs> review uh, when I used to review Top Chef. No, I no, I was gonna say the only other Blaze I saw in pop culture was. Um, undercover boss which i used to hate watch like crazy <laughs> there was a guy who i think it was the guy who ran yankee candle and he was undercover oh in God. a yankee candle store and this it was like the and then the guy who was training him was this like 21 year old kid named blaze but he was such a fucking dork like he had like <laughs> like he was not cool and it seemed really bizarre i'm like anyone named blaze needs to be cool like they had to have a cool yeah. haircut like you know that is that is the name of a guy who rides a motorcycle and this kid was such a geek but he was also so bad at his job and let's just say uh the undercover boss was not happy with his performance so the, there's uh well, it's that Ethan Hawke movie I mentioned. He directed it. He's not in it. Um, called Blaze, which is about this underground country musician, Blaze Foley. So there's that. Play. It's, it looks like it's streaming on Tubi. Highly recommend it. Very Love smart. Tubi. One of my favorite movies of uh, 2018. Um, but Randall, you didn't, I'm not I'm not trying to pick on you, but uh, you, you didn't get that Blaisdell was the last <clears throat> name. Like you didn't make that connection. I think or? I got too hung up thinking about meaning that i missed the obvious thing gotcha you know? no it makes sense i'm sure yeah. I, i'm sure i skimmed that because i know that's in there i just like when when you get a nickname and then the book's called blaze i was like and then i think especially when i saw that section i just read where it's talking about this burnt out idea mm -hmm. like that to me is uh i just start thinking about what what he's getting at and i think that was uh something this is maybe and that's maybe not like the best way to read is to try to be finding meaning in everything because mm -hmm. i think like when i was reading the end as well the birds that he sees as he dies i'm like i'm like googling what do birds mean you know what i mean because mm -hmm. i'm like he's not 
there's not an elegance to the way that he's presenting these metaphors or these motifs that he's toying with like there is in later books or maybe not even i mean not even it's it reminds me of like Dreamcatcher, right like where there's a Dreamcatcher, yeah. and he's sort of trying to justify why he's using it but we all came out of that episode not really like fully connected on what the dream catcher meant and yeah, so it's like yeah. i think that's uh how i feel a little bit about I, about these things i, I think you're you're spot on though about the bird and like the significance because like even in the bible right it's noah's ark and the dove yeah. brings a branch to signify like there is life right so i do think yeah. whether it's being you know spirited off to the afterlife or just instilling the idea of like a like new, freedom like, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. it's like a new chapter so i think you're right with that whether you got the blaze thing or not don't worry about that that's <laughs> that's a works. phoenix rising from the blazing ashes you know yeah. i do wonder if maybe some of the birds thing was maybe more of the sentimentality that he took out you know and yeah that, well see that's why earlier you're right. draft, you know that's why i said earlier like he only did the first hundred pages rewritten because all the mm. bird stuff at the end is i think that's where you know, Caffrey, I think that's like what I was thinking of mm-hmm. was all that bird stuff because that goes on for like two pages. And I'm like, I get it. He's seeing birds. He's dying. Like, <laughs> I love his, man out. his soul's being transferred to the fucking bird. I get it. It's going to sit over the kid's crib. Spoiler alert. I, I look, I thought that last paragraph about the birds is beautiful. It's in my word processor of the gods. I'm going to no. fucking read it. it tonight. Is good. I don't care. I don't care what you all say. <laughs> It'll be a bird. He'll be, it'll be a bird with Blaze's face and a dented forehead, <laughs> and then it'll sit next to a bird with Mother Abigail's face, and they'll sit over the crib. Ooh, wait, uh, what is she go, saying at the end? Is she, is she just saying, like, oh, little, little baby? Or yeah, something like something that. Like yeah. that. So, um, funny. <laughs> so, yeah, there's that. And then, uh, but no, I don't know. I think it's like, uh, the Blaze archetype, too, is interesting to me. Like, it's like a Forrest Gump character, right? Like, where yeah. he is uh, clearly you know, quote unquote slow, but he doesn't really want to commit to, you know, is this actually some kind of ailment, you know, in the larger sense of, of like, is he mentally disabled or isn't he like, Mm -hmm. you know, like when King even said in his different seasons thing, when he described the book, he described Blaze as being like kind of retarded, which is, you know, I think that was much more of a trope back then, yeah. which was the idea of like the sweetly simple person. Yeah. You well, know even that word, right? I mean, it, it's not yeah. as far as I'm, I'm Jen probably knows because you're a teacher. I don't, I don't I don't think that's like the the term for that. You would right, use, we don't use that word. Anymore. My yeah, mom was a special ed teacher when I for a long time when I was in elementary school. And that was that was like what you said back then. And I, mm-hmm. and I but I think with that did come these connotations of, you know, I'm <laughs> Like I remember an uncle being like, we need to pray for those people at night because that, you know, mm-hmm. and, and not that it's bad to have compassion for people who have a disability, but there was this kind of like simpleton sympathy, if that makes sense, that I actually think reduces the person rather than acknowledging that they too can have complexities. And I don't know. Absolutely. I, yeah. I mean, no, I'll just say, cause obviously King is drawn to this trope, uh, He's used it with Tom Cullen. He's used it in other books, too, I think. Uh, but he's not alone. I mean, this was a very, very, very common trope. Uh, I think be and I think that there is obviously this is something that uh, people within the disabled community have railed against in later years. I, I know like the filmmaker, well, the actor and filmmaker Crispin Glover, who I love, he made a, he self-funded uh, like basically a trilogy of films. The third one is still in development and they star by and large people with cerebral palsy or Down syndrome. And he wanted them to be able to tell their own stories because I think after he did that movie, he's in What's Eating Gilbert Gray, which is a very good movie. And Leonardo is yeah. very good in it, but he was very disturbed 
disturbed by the ways that people lauded awards on Leonardo for playing a character like that. I think that movie was kind of a wake up call for him as an actor that he found he found something kind of uh, repugnant about the way that Hollywood treats people with disabilities. And so he made these movies where like his second movie, it's called it is fine. Everything is fine. It's not for the weak hearted it is an intense movie, but he collaborated with a guy with uh, cerebral palsy and that guy wrote a script. And in that script, he has, it's like plays out series of fantasies where he plays a crooked detective and he like kills people and he has a uh, full penetrative sex with multiple women in the movie. And this is all, you know, it's like, and the whole point was to essentially show that the guy was trying to say, yeah, just because I don't operate, you know, cognitively like the rest of you, I feel the same urges. I feel the same resentment, anger, horniness, all these things. I am a fully well-rounded human. And he wanted to play a villain in a movie. That was kind of the whole point. And, um, and I think that, you know, I'm certainly not condemning King for this at all. It was just, I think, a pretty easy trope back then. If you wanted instant sympathy from an audience, yeah. you sort of made your character, uh, you know, and I mean, forgive me for being crude, but I think about Tropic Thunder, right, where they yeah. say you never go full retard. Like that's it's a crude joke and forgive the language, but it is true. Like that mm -hmm. is the thing is. It is a very cynical ploy to uh, draw easy sympathy, I think, from audiences. And again, like I said, certainly not condemning saying King is wrong for this or anything. It was a different time. People were operating. Art was a lot different back then. Uh, is there an insensitive quality to it? Of course. But I don't think that there was any malicious intent. And I, and I do think to, what I was going to say before is that, yeah, we've seen this with characters like Tom Cullen. Well, I was going to say Duddits, which I, maybe not a good example of that. But, you know, King has, has yeah, these, for lack of a better word, the simpleton archetype. And I actually do think for the most part he he toes that line really nicely. Like, I think Tom Collin is a great Tom's a character. great character. And, great and, character. and, I, and one of you said before about, oh, we don't maybe get to know as much about Blaze's internal world and psychology. Um, I still like Blaze as a character. I think he has a lot going on, but we don't dive into him as deeply as we do with someone like Tom Collins. I do think, even though it's a trope that maybe he wouldn't lean into as much today, I think he has a a, a good history of making those characters somewhat complex and and, and, and while also being compassionate toward them. Uh, yeah. yeah, Jen, what were your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I think like because like. I don't know. Have a character like Blaze is a way of like having your character interact with the world without implicating your character in the worldliness. You know, I think about like Forrest Gump, but here, like we see, like Blaze has to retreat from the world. So I feel like it's almost more of an indictment. And I think King makes him more of a human character than I've seen a lot of other stories make. Uh, a blaze type character mm -hmm. you know like i think about the invisible or not the invisible man, invisible man by ralph ellison like yeah. where he is just kind of floating through and the story becomes about how people are treating him and i think we see a little bit of that but we see that blaze really can't be a full human in the world he has to remove himself from the world which i think is a darker read of it than something like Forrest Gump where it's like I'm just gonna be fine if I keep floating through like I watched that recently and as much as I love that movie like it's it's interesting Tough to watch, watch it through though yeah it's for, through the lens of 2023 but but I feel like Blaze the stereotype or the archetype itself is dated but I feel like Blaze as a character kind of rises above that. I don't know if it mm -hmm. rises all the way to the top. Like it, he's, he's not invisible man, but 
he is a lot better. Like, I think he's a better written character than somebody like John Coffey, you know? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah I, I, it's actually the only character that really came to mind because he's, he's clearly more intelligent, at least emotionally intelligent, than maybe Forrest Gump. But there's a movie called Goon with uh, mm. Sean William oh, Scott. Oh, Sean William Scott, yeah. And I really yeah. like that movie, but he's a hockey enforcer, but he kind of acknowledges right away. He's like, yeah, I know I'm not smart, but he has like a good heart. And I always like the way, I'd never really seen that character portrayed like that. And there were elements of Blaze that I could see that where it's like, yeah, he kind of is in unfortunate circumstances, but he does have a good heart at the end of the day. The mm -hmm. One thing that kind of confused me because I was waiting to see if there was like a supernatural aspect with George because he'll be like, what would George do? And then George will problem solve in his head. But you're like, that's still Blaze coming to the solution, right? In his own mind. But I was like, is in the beginning, I just wasn't sure if George was like leaning in and directing him, but it is Blaze solving a lot of these problems. He'd be like, well, what would George say? He'd be like, you know, don't yeah. do that, dummy. Make sure you do that. And he'd be like, right, George. But but it is Blaze that's solving the problem at the end of the day. He's just trying to think how would yeah, George do it? Yeah, and I think it? that's sort of like that passage I read about like the burnt out nature and then yeah. what's operating below. It's, I think it's, yeah, that's like that. It's like the, the latent um, intelligence that he, yeah. that he has probably from right before he was shoved down the stairs. But, but he's like, I wouldn't yeah. have thought of that, but George did. It's like, but you did think of it even if it was through a proxy of George. But in the beginning, because this was the first time I had read this novel, and I was waiting. I was like, is there this supernatural element where, or is it just his memory of George? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. And I think it does speak in some ways to those themes about him you know, taking ownership of his own over of his own yeah. life or finding freedom from all these people who have sort of relegated him to sidekick status or used him or abused him or hurt him. Like he's, you know, by caring for someone else, he is sort of, you know, able to embrace himself fully and acknowledge that, no, I am the one having these thoughts. I know what's best for this child. I know what I can do to get out of here. So on mm -hmm. and so forth. Um, I also, I mean, I guess I found the most, I think my heart bled the most for Blaze, uh, you know, I think during that farm sequence, because yeah. you see how much he really comes to life once he has something he's good at. Like, uh, and even with chopping the wood at the Bowie farm, like he realized he was good at that, but he wasn't appreciated for that work. And it was also like one monotonous task, right? Whereas at the farm, he was able to serve you know, multiple things. He was driving the truck. He was helping people carry stuff. He was like organizing, like he ended up serving multiple functions uh, there and he seemed so happy doing it. And I think that to me was probably the most moving part of it because you see how useful it is when someone finds something they're good at or something that makes them feel useful. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, and I think that that's, honestly what so much of us are looking for in life generally is just to feel useful um and so i don't know i think that was the part where i really locked into that character because it was him being like oh i actually am good for something and that yeah. was i don't know it was really lovely yeah, there's the line where I almost put it in my word processor section, but like where he says, I'm going somewhere. And then he says, I am somewhere. And he almost starts crying. And yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. I'm not just waiting in this house to have a life that I'm never going to have anymore, you know? Yeah. Because that, yeah. that's what makes you a human, you know, is doing something and yeah. relating to other people and understanding Purpose. that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts on Blaze? Any other thoughts on any other characters? I mean, this isn't like a character-rich story. I, 
I, we probably, I mean, I think we've talked enough about George. He, he's fairly, well, I always shouldn't say he's one dimensional because, like I said, him and John, I think, are two sides of the same coin showing right. the compassion toward, toward Blaze. I just thought it was funny that. King really doubled down throughout that George is a Democrat. Just yeah, because, I know that was yeah. about to say, exactly. And, and honestly, uh, not because I mean I'm not even tying it to like King's own ideology so much. Just that I feel like criminals like that man are almost like nihilists usually, or like apolitical, <laughs> or we just like hate the man. It was so funny to me. He's like, yeah, I want to see that Reagan out of the, the White House. Um, it was just funny to me. I didn't even dislike it. It was yeah. just like it was almost like, like King was speaking to us. Yeah, hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah it was, I was almost like he just. I don't think this guy would even mention. I, I think he would have, just have a disdain for politicians in general. Um, so I just thought that was. He's like, yeah, don't even get awesome. me started about austerity. <laughs> it was an odd little character quirk that yeah. I wasn't sure fully worked, but it made me laugh every time it came. He's up, like, so. he's like, he's he's like, you know, I I think that Carter gets a bad rap for how he handled the hostage situation. He was very good. <laughs> he was good. <laughs> anyway, he's like, uh, Blaze, you got to understand about some supply side economics here. <laughs> trickle down bullshit. Yeah. Oh man, that's funny. But I, yeah, I like George. He was funny. Yeah, he's okay. I prefer yeah, I the version of him in eleven twenty two sixty three. I probably, I, you know, maybe oh, I feel yeah. differently if I heard Ronald McCart. What's his name? McClarty. Ron McClarty. Yeah, Ron McClarty. Like, hey. <laughs> I mean, you're you're probably fine without hearing it. That was he did a great job reading this book, except for that one thing. Um, I wanted to talk about Joe for just a minute because I yeah. like we've seen King write a lot of um, child characters, but we don't see him write babies that often. Like. I'm thinking about um, the twins in the dark half is really the only other kind of this age child. And I just, I like, I enjoyed the way he wrote Joe, but he also didn't like, he didn't overdo it. You know, like the baby felt like a human baby felt like somebody who has raised children, you know, and that knows what babies are like. But this one paragraph I just loved it's on page 56. Blaze was stunned at how much it took to keep one tiny scrap of human being uh, of human being up and running. He had considered his take from the beer store to be quite respectable, but he left Planet Baby with a nearly flat wallet. And I just love that just encapsulates parenthood, I think. You're like, man, how much shit do you need for this kid? You know? Yeah. And you got to yeah. watch him every second. So I just, I really enjoyed the Blaze learning to parent element of this story. I will say that, of course, made me think of raising Arizona again when he's like getting he's like stealing diapers and baby formula when the stocking stocking and then when the neighbor lady is like you gotta get the dip tat the dip tat <laughs> so good. He, he also just handled and once again i know this now because i'm currently raising a baby myself but i i feel like he got the details of yeah changing and like which I learned today, keeping your hand on the fucking changing table when you're yeah. you grease you're, that baby's ass down. Yeah, what'd you say? <laughs> you grease that baby's ass. Yeah, you yeah, know exactly. That's like a weird line. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was yeah. a little uh, little chestnut <laughs> of a line for it, but no, but he actually got the the detail. I mean, because King at that point had what two, three kids, maybe. So, yeah. um, I appreciated the. It was the. It's the first book I've read, I think, since having Boone that goes into details about caring for an infant. And I was like, oh yeah, that's right. That is how you do that. So I appreciated yeah. the. That uh, what do they say it verisimil what's that word verisimilitude verisimilitude of of uh, childcare. Me and Dan felt seen by this. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> I felt seen by uh, by uh, by by Blaze. I mean, it's still bad. He still kidnapped a kid like that's Well, true. Yes, yeah, that's just Blaze being Blaze. Blaze being Blaze. Blaze being Blaze. Blaze being Blaze. But no, I did. I liked the way the baby was portrayed because a thing in the '80s that always jumped out to me 
me and my brothers would watch a movie and the baby, it'd be like Willow, for example. And they're like, you know, running out an avalanche and the baby's like, ha ha. Like, and we were like, the baby likes it. Like, mm. yeah, brothers were like, the baby thinks it's exciting. And, <laughs> you know, as a stupid kid, I thought that was so cool. And I'm happy that it didn't, you know, as the shootout was happening, the baby didn't like peer up and like give a big smile mm. or something. Cause that would have been so silly. I have a thing about the baby as well, that I'm going to hold it for a little place called the cemetery, which uh, speaks to how I feel about babies. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Um, do you guys have anything else for characters or should we move on to a little section we call misery? Let's do it. All right. Misery time. She, she died. She just slipped away. All right, here in Misery, we talk about the stuff that made us miserable. Uh, I'll kick us off. Page 29, Dinkle Balls. <laughs> of all the insults. <laughs> Dinkle balls. I can't. I can't fuck with dinkle balls. <laughs> it's used twice. Nobody should fuck with dinkle balls. No, actually. I do not fuck with dinkle balls. Uh, what do you guys got? I, I have him calling Ronald Reagan old white Elvis daddy. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you know he added that. That's a king. 2007 edition. Uh-huh. Well, it's funny too because, and and I honestly really don't have much for misery. Like I said, the sort of backloading of George, which was a bit of a problem for me, but. I think for the most part, King succeeds in making this. How do you say it in the forward? Like, oh, it takes place in the oh, recent yeah. past or whatever. Yeah. I think he does a pretty good job of that. And I guess Ronald Reagan technically is in the recent past. But why put, I think it's just best to avoid proper nouns, like proper cultural nouns when you can, if that's what you're going for. Mm-hmm. I have no problem with him making this like a somewhat timeless book and just having it feel in a generic kind of era. I think he actually succeeds for the most part. But when I he agree. talks, like Elvis is one thing, because Elvis was... Even if it was in the fifties, right, that would work. Um, but yeah, the Ray, the, there were a couple of instances, and Reagan was one of them, where it's just like I think that we hear about X Men comics. Although X Men could be X Men came out in the sixties, so but still, even X Men feels like a little too recent to even reference, right. you know. So that yeah. just, there were a couple of moments like that. I mean, yeah, when I mean, you start talking about James Marsden as Cyclops, it was just weird. <laughs> yeah. King Dominion, though. Yeah. It's true. He's like, it's why true. did why did Phoenix end on a train when it should have been in outer <laughs> space? Um, I, I was gonna say one character that I got uh, not misery, but I was getting frustrated. But I understand that was the place was the owner of the. I think her name was like Nancy Maldo or Debbie, the the woman who owned the baby store. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. When the cops were asking her questions, and when I used to do like client intake, sometimes you had to ask, you know, to get the facts down, like what happened. But people will always try to like add details that you don't need and she was an example mm-hmm. where they're like do you have a video of that and they're like no but we've been talking about installing cameras in fact and it's like the, i just want to be like lady just answer the question yeah let the cop do his yeah. job but it's like i was getting a little frustrated um but she <laughs> did say laws king. she said laws king. Yeah. oh yeah laws yeah, she said yeah. laws yes so i gotta give her some credit so yeah no yeah. that's just some real king supporting character energy yeah. where, where it's like all right uh i have yeah. i have under misery here's where i talked about the names earlier the name that made me laugh was Hanky. Like there was Moochie, Georgie, and then Hanky. And I'm like, you know, not everyone needs the IE at the end of the right, day. Like, right. We call my dog Hanky, yeah, like Hanky Panky. Hanky. But if he was a gangster, Aww. I don't think we'd call him that. 
Like, I'd Hank. respect him. I'd call him Big Hank or something. Get your ass kicked if you call him Hanky. <laughs> you, know? you get your ass kicked. You talk Hank like right? Hank or, or something. Like, like if I'm if I'm no. if I'm getting like gangster names, I need like you know uh, like uh, uh, like Baloney Thomas or something. Yeah. I don't want like a, I told Tony you know, every, two, two times. Everyone, yeah, <laughs> I don't need everyone to have like an IE at the end of their name. Yeah. Like uh, it's just yeah, it's it just made me laugh. I'm like you can be a little more creative here. Like uh, you know Salvatore Hamburgers or something. Um, <laughs> Sally so, uh, Hams. <laughs> Sally Hams. Oh, yeah, there we go. Um, and then yeah, like I just had like he hadn't really learned how to write action yeah at least in my opinion this the like even the ending like the whole chase there mm-hmm. it felt a little blurry to me you know what i mean like the it wasn't as well defined as i think a lot of king action sequences would come in the future and again i'm well documented for also being like you don't need to overwrite action sequences aka the raft scene in the talisman uh the longest section king has ever written mm-hmm. um but in this case i'm like the, he's still lacking a little, I think, clarity in terms of writing some of these action set pieces. That was at least the truth for me. Um, any other misery before we move on? I have one more and it's yeah. kind of, and I don't know if I really blame King for it because this was written in the seventies, but there's like a dated offensiveness to it, like using the word retarded, you know? And mm-hmm. And I wrote some old spick chick, which is a, a quote from the text too. And I mean, I'm not saying he should have changed it because I feel like that would have felt like like these rolled doll books being changed now. Mm-hmm. But it just bothered me. It just was something that kind of kept pinging. Like he's just using words that we don't. For use you, anymore, it didn't. You know, it didn't like enhance character or story. It didn't really. I could yeah. have done without it. Like maybe not updating it to like PC terms, but like. This pleasant Latino woman. But but nobody gets it wrong because he's like, I they refer to an Armenian as that word. And he's like, I thought only Italians could be that, which just shows like how silly the he can't even get like the racism right. Yeah. Yeah. He hasn't learned how to write racism yet. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh no, no, I was gonna say one not misery, but actually I actually wanted to see more of that bartender shop owner that sold them. Oh yeah. I, I like kinda, that guy. I like that guy. And then he comped them the meal. And I was like, man, what a, I don't know. Nice I just thought, like, he's like, I need you to come back in a few years. I want to see how big you're going to turn out. And I was like, <laughs> I like this guy. Yeah. See, that's a great like example brother, of, just, you know? of yeah. yeah, King, King just being able to write these really great one-off characters. It's, you know, obviously something he would flex a lot. I mean, he would flex a lot uh, like a year later in Salem's lot. It's so wild yeah. to me because like, I, I think Salem's Lot is so fucking fantastic. Mm-hmm. And when just like, and not, I'm not saying like this is not a good book or that road work is, is horribly written, which I don't think it is. It's, it's just like Salem's Lot is like, like leaps and bounds to me ahead yeah. of these, which is, it's so interesting that he, I still like, I know we brought this up earlier, but I still laugh at the idea of him handing those two manuscripts over and somehow not thinking Salem's Lot was the one he might have maybe he was just like really insecure about it being like such a Dracula ripoff you know what I mean which yeah. uh which I think is fine if you tell a story as well as he tells it in that so yeah. okay let's move it along to word processor of the gods and we're gonna make a new rule whenever I'm in here you hear me typing whether you don't hear me typing, what the, the fuck you hear me doing in here when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. Now, do you think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine. Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? Okay, here we talk about the good writing. 
the stuff we really liked. Uh, Caffrey, kick us off, since this all is right. your favorite King book of all time. <laughs> look, man, it's up there. Not not favorite all time. Okay, so, uh, you know, I'm not going to read the bird section. We, we talked about it enough. <laughs> uh, but I will read, because I think we talked a lot about, oh, how much is he playing with, how much is, is he uh, elaborating on a genre, and how much is he just paying homage to it? Um, and I think this is a section that, does both quite nicely. Okay, so this is on 236 of the first edition. Uh, let me bring it up. Um, oh, it's... <laughs> I'm just laughing because uh, it has Hanky Melcher in there. But um, <laughs> it's just going into George's history. He was a bright and bitter boy. Experience taught him things that losers like Hanky Melcher would never learn. George and three older acquaintances, he did not have pals, stole a car when George was 11, took a joyride from Providence to Central Falls, got pinched. The 15-year-old who had been behind the wheel went to the reformatory. George and the other boys got probation. George also got a monster whacking from the gray-faced pimp his mother was by then living with. This was Aiden O'Kelleher, who had notoriously bad kidneys, hence his street name, Pisser Kelly. Pisser beat on him until George's half-sister screamed for him to stop. Now, in there, we do get we get Hanky Melcher. We get Pisser or Pissy, whatever his name is. Pisser's pretty so, good. So we, mm. we do get, we get some of these... Um, you know, gangster cliches for lack, or like tough guy dime store cliches for lack of a better word. But then we also get these terms like um, he was a bright and bitter boy. And then three older acquaintances, he did not have pals, gray face pimp. Like those all feel very distinctly Kingian to me. Like yeah. I, I know it's a small paragraph and not super consequential for the rest of the well, story, no, it's, but it's a lot of character. I think. Yeah. Like, I feel like detail. it packs it. Yeah, it kind of yeah. when, when King's running on full cylinder or all cylinders in this novel, I feel like it's like that. It's kind of, it really does feel like him putting his own spin on the gangster genre. So I really appreciate that. I'll, but look, I love the last paragraph about the birds. I'll just say that. I don't have to read it, but it's great. Probably the best piece of writing. What a done. loser. Jeez. So, <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's yeah. like Blade Runner at the end. It's like, maybe I'll dream. And you're like crying <laughs> over the last line. I love they do that. The on, birds. Uh, oh my God. King. On, South, on South Park, they always <laughs> reference that that uh, speech but, again at Blade Rider, but they'll like Cartman do it for something really stupid. It's Jennifer Lopez's hand. Yeah. 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 Jennifer Lopez. Maybe, I wonder if I'll dream he disappears. Anyway, that's fine. I love the, um, I love the way he, he writes about his dad early on. Like he actually tries to, like he gives just enough of a wrinkle of humanity to his father, uh, even for as abusive as he was. And I, I have two little sections here. Um, uh, his father did some protesting in the Freeport police station and more in several Freeport bars. He threatened to go to law, to the to law in order to regain his son, but never did. He claimed to love Clay, and perhaps he did a little, but if so, his love was the kind that bites and burns. The boy was better off out of his reach. I love the bites and burns bit. I did too. I had that pulled too. Yeah, and then the letter. This like broke my heart. This was like one of the most moving things I think I read. Um and so this was uh, a letter from his father. He said, once he had a letter from his father, dear son, it said, well, how are you doing? I am fine. Working these days up in Lincoln, rolling lumber. It would be good if the bastards didn't steal all the overtime. Ha! I am going to get a little place and will send for you once I do. Well, write me a little letter and tell your old pa how it goes. Can you send a photo? It was signed with love, Clayton Blaisdell. And then a lot of the words are like weirdly capitalized or spelled wrong. And it's it, it it's one of those letters that's so heartbreaking because it sounds so nice, right? It sounds like mm-hmm. so simple and so sweet. And there's this like, uh, you know, juvenile quality to the way that it's manifested. But like, you know enough about this character to know that it's all 
bullshit, right? Yeah. Like, it's not that he doesn't mean it. He probably means it in that moment. Uh, like, he's in this, like, one day he's feeling, like, intense longing and misses his son, but then the next day he's going to get drunk and forget all about it. You know what I mean? It's that yeah. kind of thing. And I think he captures that melancholy and that essence of it. And just, like, the idea that this... Oh, then he says that, like, the letter didn't even have a return address on it or anything, so he would have no idea how to mail him anyways. So that, to me, was deeply tragic and very sad and, and very lovely, I think, so... Well, even in that letter, the anger creeps in because he's like, it's a, it's a stupid hop, right. you know? So right. I think he really captured that character in just a few short sections too. Mm -hmm. you know? What do you got, John? I have, okay, I have two. I pulled the same one, the love that bites and burns. I just loved that. But this is maybe my favorite sentence in the whole book. And it's talking about Anne Bradstay. And ordinarily, I probably would criticize this book for lack of female characters, but I it's such a character study and it's such a, I think it is about masculinity that it doesn't bother me, but I love on page 245, he is describing Anne and he writes, she was not a bruised girl with a heart of gold, only a bruised girl. And something about that, I just loved it. And it kind of like what we were talking about earlier about play, like, or plays, like, he is allowed to have flaws, you know, and right. like uh, the bruised girl with a heart of gold is like an inhuman trope it's yeah. not a human being and i feel like Anne gets to be a human you know yeah. even though allows her an edge. With her. Yeah. exactly yeah yeah i love that too that whole section the virginity like him losing his virginity to her section the tenderness of it but also the humor and yeah. the like you i like when he talks about sentimentality i imagine king had even more sort of like there's already a little bit of like the moon the sky you know everything yeah but he allows there to be enough sort of quote unquote and i say this like in a good way enough like ugliness like enough like yeah. dirtiness and enough edge to it that i think it really does work and i imagine that's maybe a section that king maybe uh spruced up a little bit on the rewrite yeah. uh because he keeps a little bit of that longing and the sweetness but then he also adds like enough muddiness to it that i think gives it a real lovely edge flieger how about yeah. you um i'm i'm a sucker whenever there's like a yankee character so i forget the name of the guy that the one who owns the farm Blue Note. What's his name? Blue Note. Blue and Note. I know that because yes, my Blue high Note. school show choir was the Blue Notes. So oh, nice. nice. Yeah. You know, it's a little gin dominion. I was thinking of the rapper Blueface when I was reading it. Oh. Uh, so, but he <laughs> has beard. a quote before like the town people, and I'll try to do it here with my Yankee, but he's like, <laughs> Ain't none of you ever been stuck in the mud and needed a push? I won't <laughs> ask you how you came to be for this and still call yourselves Christians because not one of you would have said the kind of answer out what I call the Holy Joe Do It My Way Bible. But Jesus Crow, how can you read the parable of the Good Samaritan on Sunday and then say you're not for the thing on Monday night? And I kind of like that idea of like stuck in the mud and need a push. Yeah. yeah it's like I love a very that. like good way of phrasing it. And it this will sound stupid, but when I was reading that, I was thinking of that Jimmy Buffett song Fruitcakes. Because he uh, mentions the big difference between Saturday night and Sunday morning. And mm. I think Blue Note really captured what Buffett was trying to say there. <laughs> <laughs> well, he also says like <laughs> he also says like i wanted to show him what the world can be and then yeah. what they do with it like i i loved that character he, he was almost like too good for this world with like right. being angelic yeah. like he's like flawless so he's gotta die you I, know? and that's the thing is like you knew it and it was that thing yeah. of like it reminded me even like gladiator when it's like i'm gonna make you the king and then he dies before he can actually announce it yeah mm -hmm. so i'm always like if somebody is gonna adopt me if someone's gonna do something good i am singing it loud and proud as soon as I can for as many witnesses, because I do not ever want to be in a situation like that where 
you know, Blaze would have had a good life there. This guy saw something in yeah. him. And it's just so sad that it wasn't meant to be. But I, I, I would like to think uh-huh. if I had a farm like that, and I like that he was very honest with the kids too, of, you know, yeah, I am making money off you, but here's exactly how much I'm making. Mm-hmm. And very few adults in these kids' lives had ever been like that sort of honest and upfront with them. And I feel like Blueface and the bartender slash butcher guy, those were the two like angels on earth that would have been a good father figure for Blaze in some other life. Yeah. yeah. Calf, how about you? Um, what for word processor, the gods for, for more of it. I think just, uh, no, I'll st- I'm not, I'm not going to, re- I'm not going to give you guys the pleasure of reading the birds. Tweet, tweet. Oh, sure. sure. No, I'm going to, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Okay. Can I, can I do one quick one too? Uh, yeah, yeah, do it. Ahead, this is short, but if the memories are contrary things, if you quit chasing them and turn your back, they often return on their own. Ooh. Yeah, I love that. I, like I think that. I wrote that down too. I love this little section because it made me laugh. Uh, this is when all the boys are meeting at the farm. Uh, conversations began. They were awkward at first, but became more natural. When the trucks hit field bumps, everyone laughed. There were no for- there were no f- there were no formal introductions. Sally Ann Robichaud had Winston's and shared out the pack. Even Blaze sitting on the end got one. One of the ballbusters from South Portland began discussing girly books with Toe Jam. It turned out that his, this fellow, Brian Wick, just happened to have come to the Blue Note farm equipped with a pocket-sized digest called Fizzy. Toe allowed that he had heard good things about Fizzy, <laughs> and the two of them worked out a trade. The girls managed to ignore this and look indulgent at the same time. I love that. Uh, and I just love, he'd heard good things about Fizzy. It is yeah. funny because the more we're reading these very noir kind of graphs out loud, it reminds me of Angels with Dirty Faces or whatever from Home yeah. Alone. The AC said you had some dough. And like we all <laughs> kind of go into that voice. I'm going to read this last page. AC or this last... said 10%. <laughs> yeah, Snake. Snake, is that the guy's name? Oh, Snake. Snake. I'm just going to read the very end here. And I, yeah, and not just, be, not just we won't I wanna, chuckle the whole time. But, but for real, I, th- I actually do think it, it plays into some of the status themes we were talking about. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Joe Gerard Four lay behind plate glass in the hospital crib. He was well again. His mother and father would be back this very day to take him home, but he didn't know it. He had a new tooth and knew that it hurt. He lay on his back and looked at the birds over his crib. They were on wires and flew whenever a breath of air stirred them into motion. They weren't moving now, and Joe began to cry. A face bent over him and a voice began cooing. It was the wrong face, and he began to cry louder. The face pursed its mouth and blew on the birds. The birds began to fly. Joe stopped crying. He watched the birds. The birds made him laugh. He forgot about wrong faces, and he forgot the pain of his new tooth. He watched the birds fly. That line about he forgot about wrong faces, that's interesting to me because I feel like, and maybe this is me being a little hokey, but I feel like it gets at this idea of imagining a world where status and circumstance do not exist like mm-hmm. like forgetting about wrong faces it's like no no there are no wrong faces right like yeah someone like blaze is not a wrong face he was just born in the wrong world or the wrong time or whatever and so for me it, it does i mean maybe it's cheesy to say that's a message of harmony but i feel like it kind of ends on this yeah when we take away all these circumstances i mean maybe we all do have strengths that can get us through life so but i think it's a very lovely way to end, end the book. well the wrong face too i mean it's because he has that like dent in his head right so it's like yeah. there's something physically wrong as well so i think you're yeah. totally right in what you're saying and yeah, and dan it's lovely i didn't yeah, mean, i, think I so didn't sweet. mean to degrade it I'm, I'm, and, and do you think the bird was randall flag okay but i have a question because i does it ever specifically say that it's blaze that he sees because what I read that as it was like a nurse or a caretaker and it was the wrong face because it wasn't Blaze and that's who he wanted to it's, see over his crib. Right? It's funny because when I read it um, just on my own, I thought it was Blaze and then rereading it this time, I thought it was 
supposed to be more literal. Like I like that too because we were talking about whether it's mystical or not, and I yeah. I like that it kind of leaves it open for that. Like maybe it's just a a nurse or a caretaker, and he's remembering Blaze, or maybe it's actually him mm-hmm. seeing Blaze and Mother Abigail. Yeah, Mufasa. Yeah, Go ahead, John. I have one more, and it's the Mr. Blue note again on page two forty nine. Um, a man gets older. That's the thing. You don't know nothing about that, but you will. He gets older and his whole life starts to seem like a dream he had during an afternoon nap. I just love that. And like, as you were reading like the part on the truck, it just like, you start smiling when you hear that, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just like, it's infectious. And like when they go on the trip to Boston, it's like infectious too. And I feel like that's a little bit of King, like remembering writing this and thinking like, man, I really got some happy moments into this really depressing book. And, Mm -hmm. and it's just really nice. Yeah. I love it. All right. Speaking of not so nice things, (laughs) uh, we're going to go to the cemetery. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person but it ain't that person because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all here in the cemetery we talk about the scary stuff uh i have two not a particularly scary book but i will say there is a scene and i'm mad at myself because i didn't write down the page number but it reminded me of a quote uh that king had in his that penthouse interview i believe he did in 1982 which we discussed on an archives episode jen and uh he talked in that episode about um about anger he felt like when he was writing the shining and what he drew upon for the shining where he would get so angry at his kids because they wouldn't stop crying and he Mm -hmm. would feel there would deep within him there was this darkness that was like what if, what if I could make them shut up? You know, it's mm-hmm. not anything he ever would have acted on. It's something he probably only said because he was on cocaine during that interview. But it's like it's that transgressive sort of quality that people never talk about, which is mm-hmm. those moments when you are like furious at your child. And he said he really drew on that for The Shining with Jack's character, which is very accurate. But there is a moment in Blaze where I think there is that moment where. I can't remember exactly the context of it, but where Blaze is essentially like, I could kill this child. Like, I could kill it with one hand. Like, I could wrap my hand around its throat and kill it. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, was, like, extremely dark and extremely uh, distressing and very, like, and because I I think of the word transgressive, because when we interviewed King, that's what he talked about was that idea of transgressive horror. Like, what Mm -hmm. is taboo? And that, to me, is, like, a very taboo sort of thing to even put it on the page. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I definitely got a real, yeah. you know, and I appreciate seeing that. And I feel like a lot of writers or like, that was what I loved. That's what I love about young King is he will go there, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What do you guys have? I don't, man, I, I honestly don't have anything for the cemetery. I was not, I love this book, but I wasn't really scared by it at all. Yeah. I don't think, um, I mean, that cover is pretty scary. <laughs> I <drive laughs> door that up that mansion and, um, <laughs> The Marston like, House. Yeah, that's what it looks like on the front. Um, yeah, Flieger, I do you got I anything? anything. I, well, see, because like as it was going on, I was nervous that there might be like a sexual assault that would occur, mm-hmm. and it seemed like some of the laws, you know, the, they call them like the law, like these sort of yeah. like the guys that run it. And I was like, uh, are we gonna get into that? And I'm happy they didn't, but there was like this unease. 
Luckily, it was just physical abuse. I mean, it's terrible. <laughs> Luckily. I know, but that's right. what's so sad is like. Oh, no, I know what you these, mean, though, yeah. Like I had sleepers, that too, yeah. sleeper shit. It just, it, it was, it felt grimy to me in a way, like, and it was, I mean, not scary, but I mean, terrifying in real life. You know, like, I just had this unease during some of those passages, and I was happy to be out of the boys' home after a while. I, I just think, like, that's so. King's great at writing, like, really terrifying boys' homes. Yeah, like the Obviously, sunshine yeah. about the boys. Right I, and I, I have yeah. a fear of being institutionalized. Like, I know that's like, mm. a silly thing, but I've always, like, the idea of, like, being forced into an institution, whether it's a jail or mental, is, like, terrifying to me. And yeah. So, like, any sort of these, like, reformatory schools or halfway houses. So, like, when Blaze did have that chance to live on the farm, you're like, oh, my God, just please, like. I wanted him to have it so bad because that's exactly <laughs> mm-hmm. like I was reading that and I was like, I want to go chop wood. Like this sounds so like invigorating and refreshing and good for him. And so no, yeah. it was just like, there's a sense of unease. It's not really a scary novel again right. at all, but sort of the circumstances become this almost like. Uh, it just sounds like hell. Yeah. yeah it, it just becomes yeah. like, ugh. how about you, John? I, I pulled, well, I pulled, okay, I have two. And one of them was that scene where the law, the cause law is like, you had not to stop me and it's longer and I won't read it, but there's just this feeling of powerlessness that I found really upsetting. Like, and it's kind of like what you were saying, Dan, is like when you're there, there's nothing you can do and you can't reason with this person. He's always going to hold his, his petty little grievance against you because you're not who he wants you to be in the body that you have, which is just, it, I don't know. It's just yeah. frustratingly and, helpless, you know? And I think people were like sizing him up based on his, like enormous size and potential power. So it was almost like the, yeah. men, the men felt like they had to immediately like cut him down to like restate their own masculinity or something. Exactly. And he's, yeah. he's, he's like, you know, what's that? The Ferdinand, the bull, like mm-hmm. he just wants to smell the flowers. He's not interested in being right. a fighter, but they see him and they're like, all right, big boy, I'm going to like, I'll, you might kick my ass, but I'm going to beat you down every way possible. And I, I just hate right. that, that he had to go yeah. through that. I'm going to use my, the strength I can find against you, which is that I know that you, are mentally challenged and cannot and, and that so that's the power i hold over you and i'm just going to hold it with an iron fist yeah. Um, yeah the only other thing i had was there were times it's not that i thought that the, obviously the george voice was real but the way it's described at times is that it's always coming from other rooms like in the house you yeah know? Mm-hmm. then he doesn't yeah. see him which i really like that the idea that the voice existed just wherever was you know like out of sight from where uh blaze was was very unnerving yeah and and not that and i guess they only confirmed it once i think it was when he was hitchhiking somebody called him out for saying in like a george voice so i was like okay so every time has he been hearing this or is it a combination of him vocalizing it and not realizing it i was waiting for that revelation and then when it happened to i wasn't like oh i don't think it's enough to say he's always been speaking out loud as but i think when you say like a voice from another room i think it's just echoing around and Sometimes he says it in George's voice. Sometimes he hears it in another room. Yeah. I'll say there was a real, there was a real like dread that I felt when he was in the, because you mentioned this figure, like when he's in the truck with that one guy and he mentions something and then like raises like suspicion that he might be the one who took the kid. Like that scene to me was really, really suffused with dread because I was worrying this was going to be like a, you guys know, simple plan, the Scott Smith book. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I thought thought it was pop punk band, uh, (laughs) French Canadian. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I, uh, 
and distant kid. Uh, <laughs> no, um, like that. That it reminded me of 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 a simple plan, like just the escalation yeah. of yeah. one thing leads to the next, leads to the next, leads to the next. Like one crime is never it, because like to mm-hmm. if you want to keep the lid on it, you have to commit many crimes. It's yeah. like the plan is not so simple, and uh, that to me was I was so worried that he was going to have to kill that guy in the truck, and I'm so glad he didn't. Yeah. But but I was left with that feeling of like, is he is this going to keep escalating? And he, for and him? He, was, mm-hmm. he was ramping up to do it also, and the guy's like, yeah, want another cigarette? You're like, oh my god. The guy's giving him cigarettes. Like, don't mm-hmm. kill him. He's so nice. And then if he I, if he had, he would have said, "I made my mistake. <laughs> <laughs> happened to Blaze." <laughs> but you know, Sorry. to your point, Dan, I think it. I think a power a thing about the book that works is that I did believe he would kill that guy in that minute because like yeah. the, the book did as 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 sympathetic and as that character is, we did always feel like he was capable of violence, and that was it was like hitting that old woman in the house. You know, yeah. uh, he was capable of that still so okay cool uh let's fill ourselves up let's fill our bellies up with a little bit of pound cake after all you've been talking everyone in bad mama everything in the sin come to your closet and pray ask to be forgiven he's a nice boy mom you like him you really like him mama okay here in pound cake we talk about the uh the silly stuff the stuff that made us chuckle the poops the farts the uh the boobs speaking of boobs uh page 76 uh, i know what you're gonna say i think <laughs> well all i wrote down was boobs and i i forgot oh. to uh i i didn't revisit this one so let me see if i can find it here oh yeah just uh it would just made me laugh um it was a very classic King thing where you can't like introduce a woman without looking at her, her breasts. It sounded mm-hmm. strange coming from that mammoth breast, which rose under her plaid <laughs> coat, like a comber at Higgins beach. Love it. Classic King. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What, what do you guys got? I, I've got a, I don't know. I, I feel like some people might think this passage is creepy. I don't, but it's when place is changing Joe. And, um, oh yeah. The right. peen. I, I thought it was a sweet, cute scene. I, I didn't read it as creepy, but he observed Joe's penis and felt instant delight. Not much longer than his thumbnail, but standing straight up. Pretty cute. That's quite that's a rod cute. there. Yeah, no, that's quite a rod you got there, Skinner, he said. <laughs> Joe left off crying to stare up at Blaze with wide, surprised eyes. I said, that's quite a rod you got on you. Joe smiled. Goo goo, Blaze said. He felt an unwilling idiot grin tug the corners of his mouth. Joe gurgled. Goo goo, baby, Blaze said. Joe laughed aloud. Goo goo, baby. Blaze said, delighted. <laughs> Joe pissed in his face. Like, I don't know. I like. Ge- I like genuinely laughed during that scene. Oh, that's a sweet little. That was sweet. That was very funny. Yeah, but I cracked up at that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can't leave him uncovered too long. No, you can. It's happened they'll to me. Pee many right times. in your face. Yep. Yeah. Quite <laughs> one time he, one time he, uh, Boone pissed when uh, like. I got him out of the bath. He pissed all over the towel that I was drying him with. And it really was. Yep. It felt like a Fairly Brothers movie. Just like, oh, fuck that. Yeah. <laughs> just like, trying to cover it. So, yeah. Yeah. Can I say Can't stop it. Or Flieger, what do oh, you got? Just a quick one. Uh, I didn't write down too much of this smut that you guys seem to get off on. But <laughs> oh, there was man. a turn of phrase that Caffrey would always say when we were growing up and cold as a witch's tit. Oh yeah. yeah, you yeah. had like a fake band called Witch's Tit, I believe, or something. Oh, that's like, right. Yeah, that's right. But, yeah. That, that's so whenever that true. phrase does come up, I'm always like, I, De- decaf. There you go. Which no, it's funny. I heard the first place I heard that phrase, which I still remember today, is that horror movie, uh, uh, Lady in White, or is it Woman in White? The, one the Woman in White, yeah. Because he's hanging out with those bullies, and I remember they're trying to like ingratiate them. It's like little Lucas Haas, and they're hang- he's hanging out with these bullies, and the one to like. 
I don't know, to like be friendly with him, he's like, look, it's cold as a witch's tit outside. Like, and I, I just thought that was such a funny phrase See, as a kid. I'll always remember it from the outtakes of, I think, grumpy old men. Uh, <laughs> there's like a bunch of outtakes of, of Burgess Meredith just like saying various filthy things, which was funny. And one time he's like, he's like, it's colder than a witch's titty. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great, it's, it's fun. It's Halloween-ish. Uh, I love it. It's a great phrase. Uh, page 268. Of my edition. Oh, I got um, this one, yeah. <laughs> the sheets were perfectly white and clean, even though Johnny had been an enthusiastic lights out masturbator. Many nights Blaze lay in his own bed, looking up into the dark and listening to the soft creak of the springs as JC flogged his doggy. <laughs> I will uh, say though, what comes after that what, oh, what yeah, comes the stiff yellow stiff yellow but that's actually like a really effective what afterwards where he talks about getting sad about Jen, where you, yeah. What, what do you have to say about that? Well, I was just going to say I was eating while I read that and I almost puked <laughs> the stiff white cheeks, but I agree. It's really like, it's a touching way of him. I mean, not that kind of touching, but like yeah. it's an interesting way of remembering his friend. Yeah. Because very it gets very mo- sort of thing. It, yeah. it gets very yeah. mournful after that. But I mean, it is fun. The, just the phrase. What was it again? What, uh, a chronic, what do you call him? Not chronic. Uh, an oh, enthusiastic, enthusiastic lights out masturbator. <laughs> <laughs> great kingism i know yeah. i love it um i've got a few others uh his hair grew lush lushly on his crotch which was just a very Ooh, classic king phrase uh and then hold on two do you have any others while i'm finding this page i've got an absolute ass full of shit on page 40 Ooh, that's a good one <laughs> and then i have one that i, I don't know if this, this is just different because I'm the girl, but on page 230, when he's talking about, besides girls scared him, going into a toilet stall at HH with Toe Jam's treasured copy of Girl Digest and beating off did him fine, did him right when he was wrong. So far, he'd been able to tell from listening to the other boys, the feeling you got from beating off and the feeling you got from sticking it in stacked up about the same. And there was this to be said for beating off. You could do it four or five times a day. And I'm I'm not <laughs> saying that girls don't beat it, but it just it, it cracked me up. I love I, uh, it. I also like he there's a point where he ref- I can't I didn't write down your first woman's press is her cakes, which I thought yes. was like, really <laughs> that was so gross to me. Is it early pound cake, maybe illusion? Oh, yeah. like actual cakes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm at my parents' house and they have a lemon pound cake scented candle in their bathroom. I need to take oh, a picture of it. Yeah. They're not a nighttime <laughs> furious <laughs> masturbator. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Light that candle. Enthusiastic. Uh, most of these country preachers informed the boys that masturbation made you foolish and risks of intercourse included a penis that turned black from disease and began to stink. <laughs> I just love stink. <laughs> There's a line in uh, It's Always Sunny. I won't say the whole thing because it's relatively offensive, but they basically say, like, uh, have sex until the room stinks, which is always a line that made me laugh really hard. Um, That's good. Oh, I also love this. This just made me laugh in general. About actual intercourse, they had no idea because, as Toe once sadly observed, they only showed fucking in French movies. The only French movie they had ever seen was The French Connection. (laughs) That cracked me up. That's a good bit. I mean, Um, Bo Shatter is kind of hot, but, you know. That's I agree with that. Uh, I'm trying to see if I feel like I had one other. Um, oh, this is just where Blaze was getting horny looking at girls. Uh, I just like the the sentence. Blaze watched them and started feeling horny. <laughs> I started feeling horny. That's I, a very you pull for pound cake. I feel like. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a that's funny. a Colburn Colburn one. Yeah. Oh, I have one one last one because this reminded me very vividly of of the first and I've told the story in the pod. The first uh, King book I ever 
uh, really read was one I mostly flipped through in my grandma's basement. And she had it. It was uh, Christine. And I remember in Christine, there's a scene where one of the guys is like working at a gas station. He's reading mm-hmm. like a porno book. And that was a very, I was too young to really know what porno was. So I guess I did think that like you read it in a book like I didn't you know and so but then as I got older I was like that's weird like the idea of reading pornography books is just like I mean I guess that's what people do now they read smut but I guess like these were very explicitly marketed as like hardcore pornography and Mm -hmm. uh but there's a moment like that very early on in page 39 like uh that little mom and pop store that he robs a bunch of times um the nightman was a pimple pock dude who attended the blah 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 uh let me see here when the big man with the dented forehead walked in at 10 minutes of one nason was reading a book from the paperback rack the book was called big and hard the late night <laughs> rush had dried up to a trickle uh nason decided that uh after the big man had bought his jug or his six he'd close up and go home maybe take the book along and beat off he was thinking that the part about the traveling preacher and the two horny widows might be good for what the big man uh when the big man put a pistol under his nose and it, it's almost written the exact same in christine like yeah I, like he's like the guy's like oh you know the woman he's like i'm loving this book uh, the woman's fucked everyone except the mailman and the dog and the mailman's right down the street and the dog's like at her <laughs> feet right now. And then, so it was like, I remember it, it's like the same cadence, the way he writes mm. it, which is very funny to me. So uh, a little an interlude Dominion like that me. in per- Percy Wetmore is re- there's a section oh, where he's yeah. reading something like that too. And he's got it like, I think it's like olive oil or something. I bet I bet King like found one or one or two of those when he was a kid and probably flipped through them. Oh, yeah, the Tijuana Bible. Yeah. 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 Um, Okay, cool. Uh, Let's move on to our last section before our final thoughts, which is King's Dominion. There's another world out there. I know there is. Here in King's Dominion, we talk about the connections to other King works. Uh, There's a handful in here, mainly because I imagine King didn't. Or I imagine he either added them later or he ended up just reusing things because he never thought he would publish this. But, I mean, we have some pretty big ones. Uh, There's a mention to uh, Shawshank, the laundry, I believe. It's not the same, but there is mention of working in a laundry. Uh, And then the big one uh, is Martin Kozlov. Where else have we heard this name, Martin Kozlov, before? Do you guys know Uh uh cycle the werewolf right that's right that's the name of the the main boy he loves to reuse names we just talked about this with cell because uh there's a character in cell with the exact same name as a girl in billy summers get ready for uh duma key there's a big one in that one too yeah use name what Um, else you guys got they he i think not just in the forward um but in the book don't they mention second coming the vampire novel right which is obviously the the original title for salem's lot that was the big one i caught it's a vampire mm-hmm. movie called Second Coming, yeah. Or vampire movie, yeah, that's right, yeah. That when yeah. they're going to when they're going to the movies, yeah. There's references to Castle Rock. Obviously, we said yep. the mm-hmm. My Laws. Uh, they reference a Saint Bernard dog. The way that children feel safe around big creatures, for example, a Saint Bernard. And, oh, um, and then yeah. one, and this is maybe conspiracy, but when they talk about Blaze has the idea of like the house catching on fire and the smoke rising up to the beams. Oh, room two three two three seven. Oh, I've got some room two three seven myself. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, I wait. Hold on. I've got a few. I want to say though, Dan, page nine. I'm surprised you didn't grab this. Uh, somebody says, um, "God damn it, where is it?" Uh, well, let's just say somebody described something as a dilly, and I know you love that from <laughs> Ralph Brenner. Ralph Brenner. 
a dilly of a meal, man. Pe- yeah, uh, Peter Norton. Something. Yeah, Peter, yeah oh, no, no, Peter, Peter Van Norton. Is that his Van name? Norton? Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, it's a dilly of a meal. I, I, uh, it's so funny. I never noticed that until like recently. I can't get. Well, out now of whenever I see it in a King thing, I think of you. So I always <laughs> have to write it down. Um, uh, getting hit by a child, like getting hit by a truck. There's mention of that, so it made mm-hmm. me think of pet, or not even just a child, but like anybody, because Pet Cemetery, and then also a fairy tale. Recent book. There's a that's one of the plot lines as well. Somebody dying in that kind of accident. Uh, page 132, the way that John was described, the way that he wrote stories for like other people, it reminded me a lot of the way King talks about how he wrote stories when he was a kid and on writing. Yeah. Uh, just a very small one. Uh, there's mention of a character who is deaf and dumb, or at least he pretended to be deaf and dumb, I think at one point. And then later they talk about the idea of a character who uh has some kind of disability that god granted them of a, a few extra inches in the pants mm-hmm. and that is also a thing that is said about nick andros nick. that he has a, a huge schlong because he uh you know is deaf and dumb um somebody's adam's apple bobs like a monkey on a stick oh uh, yeah something he uses often Mention of Ogunquit, Maine, which we would see in the stand. Ah. Uh, there's a bull reference, bull with an exclamation mm-hmm. point. I imagine that was a Latter Day ad since he had just been working on Lacey's story, and that was probably fresh I'm, in his. I'm mind. surprised he didn't say, "Oh, bull, bull, bad gunky to the baby." <laughs> <or something." laughs> um, page two seventy eight. There's mention of a boogeyman. Uh, Mr. Mm. Boogeyman made made his appearance. Uh, <laughs> okay, I'm in room two three seven mode now. Uh, are you ready for this, Dan? On page 304 in my edition, uh, Hank says, George is a card. And uh, who else was a card, Dan? Oh, Harold Lauder. Real That's wild right. card. Yeah, Real wild card. card. I can't, is that just in the movie or is that in the book also? I can't remember if the... I can't the remember, line. but it's more iconic. It it's more iconic in the movie because, like, the leer- weird little wolfman zombie or whatever calls him that in the dream. And it <laughs> like always the one time weird. there's a puppet in the, in the stand. Very bizarre. Uh, page 335, 336. Uh, there's talk. Yeah, Blaze began to walk out onto the ice. He got nine steps before the ice broke. The <laughs> ice is going to break. It's going to break. Wish uh, he had Johnny Smith there to warn him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> There's mention of Gates Fall, Maine and Harlow, Maine. Those are all places that popped up in later King stories, um, especially early ones. Gates Fall specifically, that was one of his first made up towns. Uh, And then the end is a lot like Rage and Carrie, where it ends with a bit of correspondence, you know, or at least Mm -hmm. uh, like, what is it here? It's it's a news report. Yeah. Excerpt from a news conference. And Rage ends similarly with uh, like a report or it's like um, a letter from someone that was written. And then Carrie, obviously utilizes that that uh trope quite a bit it's interesting that that was in so much of his early work and he moved on from it um but yeah and then do i have any others i think that's it yeah go ahead jen i have a couple so he mentions paul hanscom which is ben Mm. hanscom name and then specifically gerald clutterbuck realty of castle rock maine and then an officer this is a little bit thematic but an officer breaks his leg stumbling on a deadfall oh he wasn't uh, looking straight ahead yeah Love That's it. All, I got. all right. Any others before we give our, our nose rankings? Cool. Let's move to our final thoughts. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> okay, I'll be right there. You said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. Here in Final Thoughts, we share our final thoughts with a right. Red Pennywise clown nose ranking scale of one to five, five being 
the best, the best book you've ever read. So Dan will clearly be giving it five and then, uh, and zero, if you are Justin and you just read the Tommy knockers. Um, so uh, Flieger, let's start with you. What would you give blaze, uh, on a scale of one to five? Um, as often happens, like discussing it with group of people and such nice, smart people like yourselves, it makes me appreciate the novel more for what it is setting out to do. But I think compared to the greater King works, this just doesn't, again, feels half-baked. It feels unfinished. I totally understand why he would release this not under the King moniker. Uh, I would have to give this, uh, like, I want to say 2.5 bright red Pennywise clown noses. Other than Roadwork, this is my least favorite of the Bachman novels, and I generally tend to really like those. So Nice. Sorry, King. Jen. Bachman. <laughs> Um, I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna go 3.5. Like I really enjoyed reading this. I feel like he really doesn't overstay his welcome with this story. Like I'm invested for most of it. There are a couple of flaws, but none of it really, um, really takes me out of the book. And I find like that the tragedy hits me, like it doesn't hit too hard, but it feels really I don't know, deep, but also the happiness is really infectious. Like there are some really, really joyful scenes. And I think that the balance of that and then the almost comic tragedy, but not quite over the edge, like makes it, it's just a really good balance of that. You know, it's like the sour makes the sweeter, even sweeter. So yeah, three and a half. Nice. Calf. Exactly what Jen said. Um, I, think the tone of this book for me is just pitch perfect as i said i'm not saying it's king's best prose but as far as writing in that kind of stripped down economic almost mechanized bachman way this really works for me and i think that's because it is infused with a little bit of warmth a little bit of sweetness um a little bit of tenderness and then vice versa none of all of that gets balanced out nicely by the meanness of the book like when i finish it i think i in my head i'm i'm saying Ooh, yeah, that's a little nasty, but it kind of made me think, but not too much. So I, I just really love it. I'm, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a blazing good time every time <laughs> I read it. What can I say? No, and, but once again, far and away my favorite Bachman book. Um, wow. I, I, I enjoy it more and more each time I read it. I'm, I'm going four and a half bright red. Pillars. Wow, holy shit! Just, yeah. Love I, it. I really like this book. I, I, my only complaint is the ending, feeling rushed. I agree on that, and then George the imbalance of the George storyline. But other than that, I think it's King doing crime really well. And it, fe- and it feeling like the Stephen King version of crime rather than Stephen King trying to fit himself into the true crime genre, if that makes sense. So it's like, he doesn't run away from his strengths. Um, and at the same time, he still tries to, he tries to, uh, to wear a new hat in this. So yeah, I'm a big blaze fan. It's me, Dan blaze, just being blaze. Blaze being blaze. <laughs> I love it. Four and a half, bright red Pennywise Kalanas. Awesome. Yeah, I, I I really am quite charmed by this book. It, I think this is the kind of thing that King... I'm going to like go on a limb here. I think that this is the kind of book he maybe 
envisioned himself writing when he first started writing. Like he wanted to be this kind of writer, to publish these kind of dime store paperbacks, uh, these digestible stories. But I almost feel like his ambition and his uh, deep, deep wells of sort of empathy and emotion and all these things like really overwhelmed him in a sense. And his work became, you know, it blossomed into all these different areas and I think took him places he didn't imagine he could go. I imagine he has a lot of um, love for this story because I think that it does evoke those books that he grew up reading. And I think that you do see the love in this story, which is why I think it doesn't really work for me as a Bachman book. Um, Mm -hmm. But again, that's something we're going to talk about later this month a little bit more in depth. Whereas, um, but I, I can't help but feel that this book is a little slight and that the... I think it does. And I like the way you framed it. You phrased it down, which is the idea of like it emulates rather than innovates. I do think there are places where it innovates. Absolutely. And there are sections that feel really inspired and really beautiful. The section on the farm specifically, the trip to Boston, all those things, the flashback specifically, the virginity scene. Those are really, really lovely pieces of writing. Um, But at the same time, like I said, there are moments where it feels a little I don't know, corny or silly or slight, or it's it's reaching towards something that it's not quite grasping. Um, I wouldn't say that I felt fully satisfied or satiated after I read this book, but I will say it reads quickly. It goes down smooth. It is, I think for somebody who is just getting into King, this might be a good one to recommend them, honestly. Like, I mean, it's not if they're like necessarily in it for the horror, but if they want something really quick and digestible, I think this is a really good one to recommend. It's also very likable, I think, in its own way, which again, makes it almost very un-Bachman-y. Uh, so I don't know. I, I have an affection for it, but I'm going to give it three bright red Pennywise clown noses. And um, yeah, Blaze being Blaze. Blaze being Blaze. <laughs> and this is, uh, ratings wise, I feel like this is kind of one of the more all over the place books we've had. What, yeah. what does that average come out to, I wonder? I'm not sure. I fell, I flunked, I, fl- three, well, I, I, I flunked pre calc. Well, I got oh, have, and we got Blaze here on the podcast, I guess. Can't do <laughs> <something>. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we have my my generous, wonderful score. Um, we have uh, my your accurate score. score. Absolutely <laughs> cruel score. No, I'm kidding. No, this was fun. I, I really enjoyed talking about this, and I don't think yeah. you're going to find this extensive of a discussion of this book anywhere else on the internet. So I hope you enjoyed this, and I hope uh, you stick around or join our Patreon, patreon.com slash thebarons. We're going to be going deep into uh, Bachman. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to be doing a primer, sort of Bachman A to Z, and then we're also going to be ranking uh all of the Bachman books uh, including the regulators and thinner which you know I don't know I'm really excited to actually look at them as a whole because I mm-hmm. feel like my opinion on what is a Bachman book has changed from like the like the beginning of this podcast like like when we started in 2017 and first talked about rage like I think my yeah. memory of what a Bachman book is and how it's evolved after talking about all these books and uh and especially King's life I mean I think Blaze for me too is also really fascinating in the context of what we know about King's life at this time I think I took a lot more out of it because of that than I would have if I didn't have that context. So I don't know. This was really fun. Um, Stick around for that. We've also got a dark half commentary on the way. And um, I know we've got more. I'm blanking. It's we've been recording for several hours. Give me a break. Um, We're ranking all of Stephen King's writers. Oh, yes. We're ranking all the writers. That's also going to be on the Patreon. So you're going to want to join the Patreon. It's pretty cool. (laughs) So um, do you guys have any plugs you want to throw out before we wrap up? 
Uh, just Blaze being Blaze, yeah. Just Blaze being Blaze. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Dan, anything Halloweenies you want to plug? Oh man, what did we just? I never know when the, the schedules are. Well, you've got up. Evil uh, Dead Rise. I think this is coming out this week. So. Yeah, yeah. Which I I wasn't on because the New York screening is not until next week, unfortunately. So, um, yeah. So I I know I I don't I have no idea how the guys felt about it. Um, I've I've heard like solid things about it. I don't th- I would be surprised if it's on the level of like Evil Dead Two or Army of Darkness or anything. But um, yeah, I'm excited to see. I think I'm going a week from tomorrow so yeah i'll i'll be seeing it long after that but yeah evil dead rise episode dropping and then i think we're resuming our uh chucky coverage after that which i'm excited about his uh chucky's he's a little he's a little motherfucker i like that i guy. love he's, that little fucker i want i want a i want a uh child's play version of blaze because they're into doing multiple <laughs> chuckies on the show now so we could get like a big good guy chucky and then we could have his little foul-mouthed uh counterpart um i was gonna yeah. say blaze could be a good sidekick to chucky in a different mm-hmm. world oh that'd be do, fun do, yeah just do his dirty george. work for him yes yeah, yeah. george it's just chucky for no reason uh cool anything else guys or should we log off all right let's log off with a long days and, and pleasant night. Night. bye everyone This is the end of our show. For now. Tune in next week. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more.